My name is Colin Bressler, and I'm a filmmaker, and you're listening to the Just Conversation podcast. Warning. This program contains strong themes meant for a mature audience. Discretion is advised. Going live in five, four. What does live mean? Uh. Welcome to Just Conversation, the show where we ground humanity's most absurd and baffling ideas in childish ways. I'm your host, Jack. And I'm your host, Christina. And if you haven't yet, remember to hit that subscribe button to get notified the second new episodes are released. Also, this show is most enjoyable with a listening partner to share opinions and ideas on topics we discuss. Yes, so make sure to pull some money nice and close and uh, you can you can start to have a listening partner. If you don't have basically, if you don't have a listening partner, make a listening partner and you can start to listen. <laughs> Solutions. Wait, say that again? If you don't have make a listen, one? yeah, you make one by getting somebody to listen with. Oh, okay. Yes. Then Do by it. default, they're listening. I mean, I guess theoretically, you could decide, hey, man, this isn't weird. I'm going to go to Home Depot, buy a bunch of wood, then carve it in the shape of a person, then I'm going to paint it to look identical to a person, then I'm going to sit them next to me and play this and pretend I'm listening with a human. You could theoretically that do that. Horrifying. And that is a listening partner. Yeah, that's a listening partner. Then why even do that? Why go through that? That's a lot of trouble. Just take your pillow or something. That's my listening partner. This pillow. Is that less bad or worse? You put googly eyes on it. Did it make it better? I don't know, man. I don't know where this is going. I don't know if it's uh if it's less weird to go through the job of making something look human or if it's Less weird to grab an inanimate object that's clearly an inanimate object. What's wrong with that? How is it any less weird? I guess it's equally as weird. Is it? Because you got to understand, at this point, you can at least play pretend with the... One, you have a hobby. Making a fucking human out of wood. Two. Yeah? You have a listening partner that's convincingly human. Why does it need to be convincingly human? I'm just saying, what is worse here? Because if you go with a pillow and you listen with a pillow, your listening partner is a pillow. We're not just saying you're, you have a pillow and you're listening. No. We're saying your listening partner is the pillow. Yes. It has a name. It has job. It has, you've made a life for this pillow. Yes. So this is probably worse than the, 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 pre, the what is it, the prior? It's probably pretty bad. I don't know. I think it's as bad. I don't know what makes it worse. I mean, objectively, yeah, it's as bad. It's like, what's the difference? You're both technically inanimate objects. They're both your imagination. Yeah. Except one of them eludes, but why is it that making something more real makes you look crazier? Like, definitely the pillow makes you look less crazy. But really, really you kind of are more crazy. Because it's easier to play pretend with something that's more human if you're pretending they're human. Mm-hmm. versus the pillow but we would definitely say the guy who did the hard work is crazier yes because he did yes is the hard work part i think it's it's backwards though it's backwards yeah because he has a more convincing ability he has a reason to be more convincing about having a listening partner than the guy with the pillow the guy with the pillow the guy with the pillow is crazy He's actually out of his fucking, or his imagination is overpowered, but then why can't we say about that, the same thing about the other guy? I guess. They're both very imaginative. Yes, okay. except <laughs> one of these guys has to be crazier than the other, and we seem to assume it's the guy who did the work. 
not the guy who didn't do the work and somehow still got there. <laughs> That's weird. Yes. So I don't know. I don't know. We'll leave it up to you guys. Mm-hmm. Leave leave it in the comments. On Which kind of imaginary friends more crazier? Yeah. Just tell us somewhere, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or, or Twitters or YouTubes or what, where, wherever you live, whatever technology you crawl inside of, go comment there and tell us what you think. Is it crazier to be the pillow guy or is it crazier to be the dude who made a whole fake person? I don't know. This is a hard debate. I don't know. Hard debate. There might be, in the future, we might even have a whole episode about this. Okay. This might be an impo- an impossibly complicated topic. We're going to get philosophical and come with, come with like full-fledged arguments to defend our stances Whoa. and like prove either side. And we're going to change the world. Mm-hmm. We're going to change the world about somebody's imagination. But, talking about imagination, uh, this uh, episode of Just Conversation. We have that's the little applaud sound should be playing right now. Oh, they can they can hear. I just said it. Just conversation. Boom! It played again, and uh, they should. Uh, this episode we talk a lot about imagination to some degree. Creativity, creativity. That's imagination. Ultimately, art. I suppose art. So much art, uh, but not just uh, one medium of art. We kind of spread it out. It's art centric. Talking writing and producing and directing and uh, the, the, the relationship between the creator and the uh, consumer. And, and the creator with the people that work with him. Yes, and collaborative it. efforts. Yeah. It's a multifaceted artistic discussion with uh, our, our guest, Colin Bressler from Colin Bressler Productions. He is a film director, a writer-director who does indie films of usually horror focused he he likes to go into the weird weirder places and that is as you guys know one i love creators two i love dark so it's right up my alley he's both he's both but ironically i guess doesn't sound like a dark yeah that's that exactly which we've brought up in the past with like when we had rob on the show and uh i guess pretty much anytime we've had anybody who does art we've pointed out the fact that there's a contrast to creators and how and what they create yes how their art shows mm-hmm. and uh this this applies this applies heavily in which this is a very kind loving caring very soft-spoken uh awesome person this guy is awesome colin presser is amazing and then his art is in total contrast to how he is which he is just a really loving caring guy cares about his work cares about his art his art is very dark and uh, very strange. He, he explores the weirder nature and the darker nature of things when it comes to uh, pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do get into some interesting nooks and crannies about... They got pretty philosophical and pretty psychology heavy. And a little geeky. Yeah, it definitely got a little bit geeky as well. We started mm-hmm. diving into a couple of things here. So, uh, yeah, that was pretty awesome. I definitely dug this conversation. It was... And and I'll tell you guys right now, it's one of my favorite conversations I've had on this show so far, and there have been guests for days, but... Yes. Since season one, all those guests? Since all, all those guests, he is definitely one of my favorite. He is. Uh, specifically, and I think this conversation... I like this conversation so much because it's, like, hyper-focused. We, we This show 
is notoriously always derailing into different topics. And it seems like every topic here focused on the same couple of things, which tells me one very important thing, which is he loves what he does a lot. And he could just, he could really just talk about this for an eternity, given the chance. And I love that because I am the same way. I could talk about one thing for all of eternity. And the show works in a very simple fashion when we have a guest, which is they guide the discussion and I question what is presented. The fact that this was on topic the entire time proves how much he loves what he was doing. He never ran out. He was, mm-hmm. he always had something else to dive into relative to his craft and his art and what he loves about it and creativity. Yeah. Fascinating. Pretty beautiful episode. Yes, definitely one of my favorite. One of, I mean, we got into the psychology of the philosophy of art reception through perspective of the individual receiving it. Like, whoa. What more fun could you have? What more fun could you have? We unpacked the unpacking yep. of unpacking. Mm-hmm. So, this is pretty pretty astounding. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode very, very much. It is definitely one of my favorite. I hope it is one of your favorites as well. You anyway, also let us know about that. Yes, let us know. Let him know. Yeah, and uh, go look at all his stuff. Colin Bressler. I hope you guys enjoy. Hi. Hi. Good, good. I mean, uh, you know, as best as I can be in this uh, in this circumstance, but uh, in terms of you know what, but I'm good. I'm, I'm surviving, and I can't complain. Isn't that crazy though? How are you dealing with uh, creativity when it comes to this problem right now? Because it is kind of crazy, but for creatives, it's kind of double-edged sword because it sucks but also you, you get pinned in a place where you got nothing to do but work your thoughts which is the creative tool yeah you know i mean the truth is is that for people like me uh or for myself i should say um it's been kind of like the early stages of it i i went through a quite a depression because i lost a lot of work but then i kind of like grabbed myself and said you know what man it's time to sort of like hunker down there's a there's a few things i sort of wanted to work on writing wise and as you know i mean you know this is it was like i had nothing else to do so it was time for me to just sit down and write and write and write so at the end of the day like that was a blessing and then you kind of you know it's been a long time so then you kind of hit this other side where you're like all right man it's time i need to get out of this house and actually work and do my craft and now I'm sort of like in this back end part where I have a couple of things that I've been writing during, you know, starting in March that now I'm at, you know, sort of a good place with. But I'm like, man, when am I going to even be able to film these things? I mean, people are not going to want to be on set risking their lives, so to speak, to, to make a movie. You know, I'm, it was already a, a gamble asking people that. But now it's like. See, that's actually a fascinating point you're bringing because for, let's say, a writer, right? You can stay at home. You you pump out novels. You could do that. You could submit that to your publisher. You could get it back all through email. You never need to interact, but you've got something so specific, which is people do need to be there in person after you've done your writing part. You got to do the directing part and people need to be present for that. How is that? That's that's a bit of a nightmare to face. On the flip side, I would argue, knowing human psychology, the people who will confront the issue most directly are also these more freed already, both emotionally and creative. These are just people who are already willing to take the risk because they're willing to take that risk, their risk 
takers. So you're more likely to get better actors, but struggle at finding actors harder, if that makes sense. So it's a, it's itself yeah. a double-edged sword. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And that's the thing. It's like, it's so, you know, in, in listening to you right there, like that's the conundrum. There's like so many facets to this. Um, obviously, cause like, you know, I think about it, I'm like, all right, so I'm going to, you know, I have a script I'm, I'm pretty much, you know, pretty happy with. Right. So like, I'm like, well, do I corral people like today, tomorrow or, and is that ethical? Um, you know, I'm working at such low budgets that it's like, you know, people are not going to make any money and, you know, and it's all about possible exposure. A lot of it's sort of like on a dream, right? Like the dream is, you know, it gets exposed and it gets out there. So you're asking so much of people already. And there's that conundrum of like, for my position, which is, do I even attempt it and push people like you said, there's always going to be the ride or die people that are just like, yeah, I'm going to show up and I'm going to work because I love it or, or whatever. Right. But is that fair to them? Is that also like, is that, is that the right thing to do? So it's like this like multifaceted grappling that you're ha that I'm having. And I know others that it's like at the level at which I do this, um, I can't, I can't guarantee safety at the same time. That's true of any shoot I've ever done. Uh, and so, you know, just sort of like, what's, what's the line? What's the ethical what sort of line and standard but that, you, uh, that you, a no-budget filmmaker has? You do point something interesting there out, which, which makes me wonder where you're at with this. Because you feel that their safety, even if they're willing, it's somehow your responsibility. But if they understand the consequences and they opt in, why are you still feeling guilty if something were to take place? If they're fully aware of their choices coming into it and the risks that it implies because of the circumstance. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that's interesting because like it, I think that's like the, the line of, of differentiation between certain filmmakers and others. Um, for me, I, I kind of very much, I do it in my own life, but as a, as a director filmmaker, I internalize a lot of this. And I also, I feel very responsible for not only the cast safety and the crew safety, but also like the quality, right? So it expands to like a lot of what drives me when I'm all alone editing these films is like I, I do, I see their faces and I see them sort of judging me and saying like, man, this is crap. We spent all that time doing this crap. So I extrapolate that out to like, now I'm, I'm saying to myself, am I, am I just in putting people in harm's way, um, to make this, this, project that's come from my heart and my mind is that like is that vanity is it you know what am i exploring there and am i am i and am i and am i just in exploring that on the backs of all these other people and it, it goes to something you said earlier you know the thing about cinema that is that i love about it but it's also kind of a horrible aspect is cinema is like the collection of so many different types of artists all in one art form all struggling towards a like a cer certain goal and so in the world of covid you know it's like you have to sort of think about all that and you take that into consideration now that's me some filmmakers that i've worked with on the other side because i i also work in crew uh they're not as concerned with that you know, their mind is like, they're like, like they're soldiers. You know, it's like, Hey, we're foot soldiers. We're going out. We're going to war and some might get shot and some of you might come back and, and have a feast tonight at the, at the camp, you know? Uh, and, and so, you know, 
for me, no, I, I take it all very personally. Uh, I, I, I try to think, uh, about those ethics, uh, very deeply for me. Um, and I grapple with that, but I, you know, like you said, it's kind of this back and forth because there is this mission where you're like, once you start making a film, you kind of like, you're like, I have to make this film. It like almost to the point of death. Okay. Like, I okay. Just I feel that. So this. you're more scared of your own drive than you are of putting somebody else in danger. You're scared that if you get the ball rolling, you'll be the guy who no longer cares. Is that accurate? Yeah. To some degree. Yeah. Because yeah. what I would say is you don't think that maybe your overprotection of another person who's opting in, your consideration ahead of time. So so you, you, you suggested to them, hey, you know, it's going to be difficult, whatever. And then you question the ethic of it. If you were to make the choice for that individual ahead of time and be like, no, I can't do this because I'm going to put people in danger. But everybody you'd put in danger are people who willingly would opt into it. You don't think you're sort of removing the choice from them and then as a result being sort of almost unjust to their willing to take the risk for their own craft? Let's say the actor. The actor is willing. They, they understand. I got to do the hard thing. I'm going to be in hard positions. Sometimes it's going to suck. Sometimes it's going to be easy. It's a roller coaster. But having the opportunity, I will take it. But you never give them the opportunity because you're not even going to do the film because you're scared about the implications and the danger. But they're over here waiting for the offer and you're the one who could give that offer you don't think you're sort of taking something away by worrying about somebody else uh no definitely i i think i i i think it's like i said a double-edged sword i think you're i think i am i i mean innately right like i'm by making these choices then you're someone might say to me man i love that that character i desperately want to play that character in your new script right and i'm like well i know but i'm gonna wait like another year minimum and they're like, well, all right. I mean, I just, I really want to do it. I want to do it now. Yeah. I mean, innately, like I'm, uh, I am doing all that. I'm robbing them of that opportunity at this moment. But at the same time, what I, th what I find interesting about it is like, we're, uh, every project we do is sort of like this journey unto itself. And I've realized that I think that like this, what's happening now to me and the industry as a greater thing is we're having this self-reflective moment about what it is to make films and have we been doing them correctly all along? And what is, because the truth is like um, over the history of cinema, there's a lot of questionable actions that have happened on set in terms of safety and things like that. And, and my industry through the unions and other areas have, have really grappled a great deal with this notion of, well, where's the line, right? For instance, let's say my, my new movie has a scene where a guy, you know, captures someone and beats them to death, right? Uh, but that person's also chained to a wall and there's all kinds of stuff, torture, all this kind of stuff. That person I just described happens to be 12, right? So I'm finding an actor that's 12, probably 18, whatever, right? Or a kid. What are the ethics involved in that? Because the truth is, even though the kid knows it's not real, even though the kid knows it, like we've my the film industry has always grappled with that reality of what is the line? What is the line exposing a toddler to a murder scene in a movie, even though it's a set and they can see it's all fake? That toddler's still experiencing that as it is, and there's violence and they're experiencing people crying and screaming. So I kind of went off on a tangent sideways, but. 
but that's the, like for me, like I, I think what I'm grappling with is kind of innate to to the to the industry. To be honest, I, I think I think the COVID thing has brought that to the forefront into a greater dialogue. It's fascinating, fascinating. One, go on as many tangents like that as you want. That that's where the juice is. And two, let me focus on that juice real quick, which is <laughs> I find. The same problem you're talking about, let's use that kid as an example, which is something that we as in, in not just that form of medium, but like seems to be pretty applicable everywhere, which even in the music industry, in films, uh, um, pretty much everywhere. When we expose children to these things and not just the exposure of the context and what you're doing. So maybe it is a horror, maybe it is a murder film, maybe it's something highly sexually explicit and there's a kid that happens to be part of the film. Who knows what that does to the child? But then we have to bring in the whole, why are we okay with children working in some circumstances and not in other circumstances? Which is very, very odd that we're okay if we can tax the child to some degree through their parents, but not if the child earns the money and not. And then we think of these same concepts as like, okay, you can cause some severe traumatic uh, damage to this child. This this kid could be ruined forever, but let's remove the child and then see other things that are the same, right? So we have the sex industry, but if we have a selling your body is illegal unless you can tax it and have proof with a camera in front of you. So we have the same problem that circumstantially some things are okay. Depending on the taxability of it, or in front of which audience it's right, but in front of which audience it's wrong, and I don't know where we picked any of these things. I find that incredibly weird. But then if we go back to the kid, we have an even more peculiar problem, which is how did we decide when it's okay to work when did we, how did we land on the bar that decided adult and child to then say that the child shouldn't be exposed? How do we know that we didn't get 18 wrong and maybe 35 is when you should be exposed to violence because you're ready to handle it? There's so many nuanced problems that even if we decided, okay, no children should ever deal with this. Okay, then we put them at 18 or older, and that's the only way you can act. That's the only way you can be exposed to crazy fame. No kid will ever be in another movie. No kid will ever make music, and you will never be put through this hard work. How do we know that we got it right at 18? What if that's still scarring the individual? How many people became famous at 20 and then still have a total psychological crash at 30? How do we know any of these things? So what you're bringing up is a pretty complex and interesting point about labor that we don't really know what we're doing safety-wise at all. Work is inherently flawed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, um, right? I mean, think about, uh, I don't know. I don't know the exact time period, but I know turn of the century, not this century, the last century. I mean, kids kids worked, worked, you know, in, in, in coal mines and stuff. Uh, the notion of childhood wasn't a thing, right, in terms of the way we see it now. Um, I think about, I actually think about that quite a bit in my own world because when I'm down or I'm struggling or I'm frustrated, I kind of do. I don't know why. I think it was instilled in me at some point in my life, but I think about the fact I'm like, you know, people like kids used to work 18 hour days in like in a, in a pit, you know, chopping, not like hitting a wall with a mallet, you know, um, 
it's a weird thing for me. I guess it's something just I've instilled in me. But but yeah, I mean, so it is something I actually think a lot about. Maybe that's part of what like our our earlier part of this is maybe for me, I it's it's deep inside there. So like I'm grappling with that, and therefore I'm sort of like always having that mentality in my mind of like uh, because my first film, which was my second film, sorry, was a slasher film. And the killer in the film, spoiler alert, the killer in the film happened to be about 12-year-old girl at the time. And I remember when I cast it, I was shocked, one, that I even found anyone. When I wrote it, I said, ah, I'm going to have to end up making it an 18-year-old woman. But I found this family, and they were so willing and so excited. And I kept telling them, like, you know, there's, like, blood, and there's a little bit of sexual content here, like – you know, you're good. And they're like, yeah, 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 it's all good. All good, all good. And, and she would, they would have her, it was during the summer when we filmed and they would have her show up and, and just hang out all day. And I'd be like, do you want like, uh, we give you a room somewhere so she can be, so she doesn't have to be like around all this. And they were like, nah, it's all good. So obviously there's like a cultural component because that family didn't care at all. Um, I cared more than they did about it. And I was really on eggshells about it. Um, but like I said, they didn't. So, I mean, I think the greater, the greater question in all of it, right. Is like, I, for me is like, it's a functionality thing. It's like what I do is my love and it's the most important thing. And, you know, it's so important to me cinema, but at the same time, like it doesn't move mountains, right? Like we're not curing cancer is a, is a very famous line in the film industry. Um, so do we expose kids to this or do we find a 20 year old woman that looks like a 12 year old girl? You know, is it more ethical to do that? Is it, you know, well, I would, I would put forth the argument of the artist's integrity, which is, do you think your work is worth it? And if it is, should you suck it up and do what is required or should you compromise your ideas for societal norms? I mean, my philosophy, I think, is that I, I will, I will modify if I can. But I do think you're onto something in that there's only so much modification you can do based on the premise we're talking about, right? To the point of authenticity or to make the project work. There's times where you're just, you know, You've got to do it like uh, um, casting a child actor in a, in, a, in a explicitly scary, bloody, violent, sexual film um, on its surface in terms of some of our cultural norms isn't the, the sort of right thing to do. Right. But at the same time, like you said, it's that line between I'm here to make a story. And for that story to resonate and to, for that story to to make sense to the audience I'm sort of, I have to figure out, well, what is the line? And, and it, I, I like, I, I, for me, I modify up until that line at which the film will then suffer to the point at which it doesn't make any sense to make the film. Uh, if you can get to that line and you can get away with a 25 year old kid, uh, playing a 12 year old kid, uh, 25 year old person playing the 12 year, 12 year old kid, then so be it, you know, then, then make it work. Um, but if it takes away and it's, 
someone, you know, the audience isn't going to believe it and therefore the story is going to fall apart, then, then no, I mean, probably best to rewrite it entirely from that point. If that's that big a deal to you, you know, and, and I, like I said earlier, some people it's not, you know, some filmmakers, that's not a big deal. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I like that you brought up the idea of uh, the cultural difference that might have allowed that family to be okay with that. Because what you said is definitely true. There were there was an entire lifetime, not even a lifetime, pretty much always until the moment we live in, the concept of a child wasn't a thing. It's we made that up like pretty recently. There were like you said, people working coal mines, uh, full businesses, people so were sweatshops before we called them sweatshops were just a place where children worked. It was just a thing that was normal, and. Not even that long ago, but we think 30, 40 years ago, not even that long ago, our grandparents, young grandparents, some of them got married at 12, 13, 14. And that was just common things that were happening in that time. And we sit here and say that we were worried about these children, but the people who raised us with the capacity to even worry are the people who were in those circumstances to begin with. So are we doing them a disjustice by creating a bubble and thus hurting them in the long run? Or are we, should we just set them up for the world the way it is? Or are we really protecting them? There's so many different philosophical angles to this that we could potentially be damaging by protecting the because sometimes it's just reality like okay it might be a film but somebody um i like the story of um what is his name um the guy from titanic you remember his name leonardo dicaprio okay leonardo dicaprio he was doing i believe it was Django, and he could not just say the n-word to samuel l jackson this is a 40 year old man who is still emotionally struggling with doing his job because of a single word. And he knows it's acting, and he's acting with a guy who's aware that he's got to say the word. There's None of this is confusing to anybody. It's not something he's originating. It's on a script. Everybody agreed to that being necessary for the film. And this adult man is struggling with getting the word out. Now, this is fantastic example of the contrast between that little girl being perfectly fine and a grown man having essentially a a panic attack and a bit of a psychological breakdown over a single word. You had a girl fictional murder people. This guy was just going to be fictionally racist. And only for that moment would he have had to express it in a direct kind of way. And it was messing with him. Was he not exposed to the things that that little girl has the advantage of being exposed to now that would have prepared him for something like that in the future? Did he live in a bubble? Are we doing that to our kids? Or is that girl going to have some sort of scar because of this and as a result be in that situation in the future where any violent scene is too violent because she feels she's directly connected or something? There's so many little nuances that we just can't understand or comprehend relative to this. Yeah, you know, well, I think that that's the, that's actually all of that is true is in parenting, right? Like there is a, there, there's a, there's a bizarre connection in parenting to directing a film because you're sort of, you know, all of these actors are exposing themselves to you 
and then at a greater extent to the camera and then eventually to the audience. And you're like this parent and you're sort of there to sort of in a way protect them, but also you're, you're exploiting them. Right. I mean, that's the truth. It's like you're, you're, t- you, you wrote a bunch of words down and you're asking them to say all these words and you're asking them to be these people and you're asking them to be vulnerable. And as you said earlier, it's their job. And so when it gets to this, this, the 12 year old girl in this, in this conversation and Leo DiCaprio in, in someone, by the way, who, who I believe was an actor as a child, um, you know, it's like, it's like that exploration. I, I wonder how much he sort of looked towards his father, who was Tarantino on, in the story you're talking about, in the movie you're talking about, and felt he, he was looking for guidance to say, well, what's the line and, and where do you, where do you want me? Where, where's the line going to be? And how comfortable can I be at this line? How can I cross it with the use of that word? Is that going to be okay? Where, where do I go with that? And I think that like, we set those tones, but it's funny because you're saying like, I, I, I really connected to something you said is because, because I am a, I am a father. Um, is that like as a parent, that is literally constantly in the back of your head, the front of your head, in front of you and exposing to you all constantly, which is the notion that is every single thing I do destroying this person. Am I, am I pulling them away from something they need to see or pulling them towards something they don't need to see? And you're just constantly sort of this, 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 uh, seesaw of life going like, like you might show them a picture from a comic book that you like. And it's like, you're like, Oh wait, that picture is kind of violent. Did I just expose them to violence that they shouldn't see at eight years old or a movie? I mean, God, I mean, movie, you know, 1980s movie is totally different now. Yeah. The subject (laughs) because culturally we see it differently. Right. And so like you're as a parent, you're you're constantly balancing all those things and you're you're really questioning every day whether or not you're do you're 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 bringing your kid towards a, a bad path or a good path and then how to do that. Any parent who says they, they actually know the answer to that is, is lying. But but it's 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 to bring it back to this. It's not any really different than my experience on that set with that 12 year old and possibly Tarantino's with DiCaprio. I mean. You don't know, you know, you don't know what the right answer is. You just sort of like, I, but I will tell you something interesting. Once she was committed, once I saw her parents were committed, I did, I did feel in myself that the barrier kept getting kind of shrunken and shrunken. And it, I would push further. I'd be like, oh, you're okay with like stabbing this woman like 15 times. Cause I was just going to have somebody else do it. I just needed shots of you looking like you're doing it. And she's like, yeah, it's cool. So I would be like, okay. And I would, I noticed in myself that her thumbs up green light meant that I could push the envelope further. So there's something also there in that dynamic that when I got the green light, I then was allowed, it allowed me to sort of move past my certain psychological barriers to sort of accept something that even telling you right now, I question. See, that's really interesting because you are, you're, you're expressing something very honest, which is the, 
in getting to know the and maybe not in a profound personal kind of way but in getting to know their performer to your director there's a connection that happens there that allows you to understand that version of them better and thus become more comfortable with that version of them it's like having a close friend you meet somebody new you're not going to be outwardly yourself you're going to walk on eggshells kind of get the feel for this person and you're always going to push a little more and see where that goes and push a little more and see where that goes but if you have a friend you've had for like 20 years you're the most horrible human around them willingly because you know how they're going to receive all the things you do present and there's still things you don't present to them because you know how they would respond to them there's a custom how to put it we're different people to different people and the person you became relative to the actor of this 12-year-old girl was custom for that person, and you reached the, where you needed to be based on getting to know this individual. And I feel the same energy, uh, what's a good example? A photographer. I love uh, the connection a photographer needs to have with the model, usually somebody they met in that very moment. And it starts very stiff, maybe they got a three-hour shoot. And it starts off very, very stiff and very awkward and, you know, do it like this and do it like that. But then as the photographer gets more friendly and uh, sometimes the photographer gets flirty and sometimes the photographer makes jokes and sometimes the photo- and they'll customize who they are to the model so that the model feels more comfortable and is willing to do things that she's comfortable with, not just his request, but rather the middle ground of both of these artists coming together and creating a thing. And you're doing that same thing as a director and as the writer and figuring out what feels right for this person without me violating me, but without me violating them so that what I present to them is truly me minus the parts that would make them uncomfortable rather than fabricating versions of myself. You're just customizing what they get to see the same way you would with a friend. I find that fascinating. That is a, a the true nature of a collaborative effort is bringing in all the pieces and making a machine that works by leaving the extra out and i find that amazing i find that that's probably the best part of being a director and i'll be honest with you like um i i grapple with the fact that i you know i sometimes wonder if i have what it takes in that the truth is is that there's a there's a part of like my experience that i internalize the idea of a director and the notion of what it is in the context of cinema. And I always kind of like get back to, I'm like, I'm like, I don't know if I can be that. And by the way, I don't even know if that's true. Like, I don't even know if this director I have in my head exists. Right. I only can tell you what I read YouTube videos, you know, right. Like, like these images and these concepts of what a director, a film director is like, or isn't like. And so I have created a mythology in a way around, what it is and therefore you know i know that like there are lines i'm not sure i'm willing to cross but therefore am i can i succeed if i'm not willing to cross them you know it's 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 like this conundrum right for me um i i I know that you kind of have to have a little bit of a, a a willingness uh to to go to the heart of darkness per se um and so it's it's for me, the internal monologue is like, what, where, where, where is my line? Like, and, and have I reached it or will I reach it? And, and can I cross it? And like you, you questioned earlier, like, you know, uh, if it, if it suits the story, you have to cross it. 
So it's like when I get it's like the Rubicon, right? So like, can I, am I going to cross the Rubicon? Am I an invade or am I going to am I going to pull the troops back and go the other way and retreat? And so like, I think that's the great sort of like thing. And I don't know. I, I I'm only myself. I can't speak for other directors. I wonder if this is a an inner monologue that they, that they all have. I, don't I got a question. Do you feel you put yourself into your work? Yes. Like your stories are you. They're not literally you, but like you're putting in your feelings and your emotions and you're customizing a world you want to create, not that you believe others want to see. You're putting it's you. It's for you. And then if people like it, then great. That would be fantastic. But it's yours primarily. Yeah. Especially my last two. Um, I, I and, and that's only because of skill, right? Like I, I'm learning, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid to admit it. I'm learning. Right. So like each movie, I get a little bit better, but it's also what I find is each movie with comfortability. You, I start to sort of find my own voice, but I, I, something that, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I would take a higher job, right? Like someone called me, do you want to direct this movie? Of course. But I really love the idea of like, crafting and telling a story that i feel is important and has to be set or or put to the world right um and so that that's like one of the most important things to me so yeah i mean my answer 100 percent. i mean i um very these these are very they're yeah i mean they're they're parts of me and i think that the more i examine the movies themselves the more i start to see myself more and more in them and it kind of freaks me out a little bit on a on some level because I, I notice and I go, oh, wow, all right. I didn't even realize I was doing that or expressing that idea. But so, you start to see it and it, it's a little little crazy. That's very interesting because you you're, you approach, you, you present yourself as a really nice guy. You, you come across very soft-spoken, very considerate of others. You're worried about how you're going to affect a different individual for your own work, something you love so much. You're truly concerned about how somebody else is going to receive it. Meanwhile, the work that you're worried about how it's going to affect somebody else is particularly dark and particularly twisted. Yeah, you're worried about a little girl stabbing a person 16 times. But you wrote something in which somebody's gonna get stabbed 16 times. There's a, a ginormous contrast between who you are as a person and what your art would trick somebody to think you are without ever getting to know you. And I, I think it's the double personality thing where the artist is always expressing what they couldn't express any other way through their art. So you're not, uh, if you could just go out and tell somebody the craziest, darkest thing and like laugh and no, it was a joke, you wouldn't make something dark. You'd probably make something very emotional, but you probably come across very passionate and very loving and very caring in your life. And as a result, these darker, suppressive things come out in your art versus somebody like me. I am very upfront. I am very aggressive. I'll say dark things. I don't care. It's about self-expression but then i find that the things i personally write come out very emotional and very vulnerable and i feel very weird showing them to others because of how different from me they are but i find that amazing because you are still you're expressing the other parts of you one way or another it's so funny man i i i it's, 
like like examining, and I don't want to get too meta, so I won't go too far down this world, this hole. But I, but yeah, like meta, examining bro, you get and meta. like when I first met you and you 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 were like, yeah, you might be interested in bringing me on. I, I looked at it and I was like, I could tell there was a there were, in my opinion, what I would call this is a courage. See, I I think that like all art is about courage, and the great art only comes out of like extreme courage. And what I mean by that is I don't have that yet. I hope maybe I can aspire to that. But what I'm saying is like I do. I I, I don't even know you, right? But but I do actually feel confidently that what you just said is true. Um, I might be wrong. You might be wrong. I don't know. But that, I, Who I knows? Get a sense that <laughs> Who knows? True. But I but I like I do like I I think that like the great things that I've seen, the great cinema, the great music, whatever it is, I always sit back and I always go, damn man, that person like what fucking courage to just lay it all out and just like express an idea and not be afraid of it and afraid of how it's perceived and i agree with you man i mean that's like for me i'm nowhere near there like i i, I still i think what happens for me is it like it, it like the past the things i'm super passionate about it about society life psychology i think they eke out Somehow, some way they get out of me, but I'm like trying to hold them. I'm like, no, no, stay in, stay in. But they're trying to get out, right? And they get out in little itty bitty ways that, that I notice as I, as I start editing and I, and I watch the films 80, 100, 800 times because I have to. Um, and I start to see it. I go, I go, oh, okay. So it's like, and then I realize I'm like, well, maybe that's like the thing is that certain artists, certain filmmakers, certain whatever is that they, they don't have a bottle. They don't bottle this stuff. They kind of just kind of like let it free. They, they know where it is. They know how to access it. And most importantly, they're not afraid to access it. And to me, like I said, there's nothing but courage, even if it's crap, by the way. The courage it is to put that out there and to be sit, laying bare like a very eternal or uh, internal, sorry, internal mood or experience or a thought or a passion and like not be afraid like I'm scared shitless, man. Like of people's like responses and for people to see my movies. And, and the th thing is, I don't care if someone says Remy's Demons is a piece of crap. That doesn't really bother me, right? It's when somebody gets to the core of my anxieties and my experiences in their criticism that I go, oh. And I tell my wife, I'm like, yeah, I got a horrible review today. Wow, well, oh, what is it? And it's like, she's like, ah, not that bad. And I'm like, but it, they literally talked about the, the most important facet to the things that matter to me. And they didn't like them or it didn't affect them, didn't hit. You're talking about the dream, man. You're talking about the, the fantasy we all live in, which is to be uninhibited, to be just flawlessly open and free and share whatever most twisted, most honest, most emotional, most vulnerable, that's the right word, most vulnerable version of something we're trying to expose. That thing, one, to know where it is and access it, because who knows who they are? Nobody. But if you, even if you don't know who you are, you know where to find the parts that make you up? How, what fascinating thing to be able to do and like you said there are some people who just access that they just tune in they go sit down and just pump the thing out and do it throw it out there and give no craps on to the next one and it's a work of genius like you said whether good or bad you can objectively see and be like that's impressive and 
wouldn't we all wish to be that free? That is completely fascinating, and I think it's the biggest struggle everybody goes through, whether it be directing, writing, uh, painting, drawing, somebody being able to look at it and find, not not question the art, but somehow see you in it and question that. That's the fear. Because you could make uh, you make a film. You love making films. You make a total turd and you put it out and there was none of you in there. It doesn't matter what anybody questions. You don't give a fuck. It's totally fine. Nobody cares. You don't care. They could judge it all, but there's nothing there of you to judge. But you do something which was passionately you. And there's, whether it be the tiniest little shred of who you are in there, if they were to, for whatever reason, hit that nail on the head, and may, it doesn't even have to be a bad comment, it could be constructive criticism, it could be a compliment. The fact that they could even see it is what's getting to you. That's what would be getting to me. The fact that they can see you hidden in there. Because what are we doing other than hiding behind what we're making? Because we can't outwardly say that version of us. We are who we portray ourselves and then our art is opposed to us because we can't portray that opposed version. And when somebody can see, oh no, he's hiding in the words. Oh no, he's hiding in the images. Then that, the fact that they can see us, we suddenly feel so vulnerable and exposed. What, what would it even feel like to let go of something so profound? It has to be some level of disassociation or something. I don't even understand. And, and you know, you, it's so interesting because you made me, while you were saying that, you made you, I was thinking, I was like, wow. And there's also this, like, this other level to, to this conversation, which is like everything that you and I do, any creative actually, right? The truth is there's a commerce to it. And so what, what I find interesting, and there was something that you had said a moment ago, it's like, so, there's that level, right? You're talking, we, you and I are talking about that, like, internal experience of expre expressing the art. But then there's something I find fascinating, which is this art doesn't, like, you don't just make it, right? And it's like, you're like, all right, you know, seven people saw it and I'm good and I moved on, right? Because we have to, like, breathe and eat and have a home. And so there's this, like, dynamic of commerce and economics behind all of it. And the reason I find it fascinating is because it's like, I wonder, and in a way, I'm almost going back to your, com your, your, your comments about children and sort of like child labor and all that. Is that like, I wonder that like, in a way, art like lost its purity the minute that economics became a factor. Because the truth is like, I can't go into doing anything without thinking about some level of economic satisfaction from it, right? I, I can't. I, I don't make a lot, I don't make really any money off these movies, but I make a, a very little bit. So it sort of, in a way, justifies itself. But, but is that really was the intention of the, 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 the fact that I'm interested in this art form or that I want to express this art form? Is that the innate, like, uh, uh, purity to it? Or is it that it always is? I, I, I don't know. I, I tend to think that we did cave paintings you know, 12,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, um, not under the idea that someone would pay me a, a rock or a stone or a piece of fish to see my cave painting, you know, like, so I just, I always wonder to myself, like, what, what, what happens when, like, in the reality is like, I, everything I do is somewhat 
uh, mired in an economic position. I have to think of, even if, by the way, it's the time that I take to make the movies, I may not be doing my, my other job. I may be asking those, those actors to get a day off of work from their job. And now they're not making money off their job, you know? So like, there's all these like interesting elements and you just made me think about that. I'm, I'm sending us in a different road, but like, you just made me think about that in your last statement. It just like, I feel like there's an internal, this internal thing that, that I'm, you know, that I was expressing earlier. It's like, can I be pure? And can, am I strong enough to express exactly certain things that are fat, that are inside me swelling up? Or, but on the same time, how much can I, can I refuse or push back that economic pressure? Am I, I allowed? Am I? That's it's it's craziest that that's the case because it's one almost unavoidable. Two, you have to question if when you do remove something or you do add something else that you didn't want there but is quote necessary unquote, is it suddenly for the economics? that you're doing it and then that thought in the back of your mind like am i doing this part not because it's honestly me but i'm essentially selling out in doing this part and then the scariest piece of that is when there are examples of the people who weren't getting paid think of isaac newton he was just at home he was just at home the black plague was happening he was just chilling at home doing his thing creating calculus just creating some of the most profound things humanity has ever witnessed. He was just creating for no profit. There was no, he did not assume anything would come from this. He was just bored, decided to study, decided, hey, I'm at home all day because the Black Plague is ravaging. I'm over here. I'm just going to do something I love. And then that came out. When, when people find hundreds of Picasso paintings in a basement that he wasn't showing anyone, and those turn out to be the most expensive pieces because they're the most beautiful and complicated. He wasn't showing anybody. Those were just for him. There was no plan to reveal anything. And the fact that that's the most widely received ones, because they're most, mo they're the biggest chunk of him that we could even find. That that representation of, am I sacrificing myself for money, and am I missing out on true? pure art and creativity and something really astounding because I'm almost a sellout. That that conflict is profound. It's something and inescapable because we, we live in a capitalistic society where the potential for anything to be profitable exists. And that's the worst part. If it wasn't an option, if it was impossible, if America wasn't a thing and everything couldn't be marketed then maybe we wouldn't have, but we were raised with that in our minds that, hey, you could one day grow up and be an artist and be rich. And it's like, wait, I couldn't just be an artist. I had to be an artist and be rich. That was just one thought. And it's engraved and it's programmed and it's taught that way. And it's taught in school. What else is taught in school? Economics and math and sciences. And why are you doing all these things for the love of it? No, because you got to get a job. Yeah, no, I, exactly. And And so you, and I think that, so that's, that's like debates, right? So it's like, I go to school to get a job. Like I learn all this stuff to get a job. Vendors, creatives who are like, I'm going to school and I want to get a job, but I want to get a job. See, I, I, I grapple with this a lot is like, sometimes it feels like a fantasy, right? 
like the idea of like making film or making music. I know a lot of people making music. I know a lot of people making film like me, right? There's this notion of like what you said, like that our structure, our society, meaning the United States society, it's like, you know, there we value we 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 have a value system for like what jobs are important and we've we've kind of valued them on some level on a scale of their importance i guess to like the functioning how the the economy functions or how the society functions and we have obviously like art is not super high on that list um and so therefore there's like this this notion of not only obviously we, we I mean it's like classic converse the classic thing is like oh so the artist like is a is is the bohemian the artist is a struggling person that is just struggling and then every now and again one of them breaks free and becomes rich off of their art like you said Picasso and, and many more um and the same can be said for what I like I said with cinema although the one interesting thing in my studies of cinema were is that cinema always had this direct correlation to economics and commerce, right? Um, because it's a collective to create a, a film minimum, you need five people, let's say. I mean, that's like, that's how I work, but like, that's like the minimum bare, bare bones, basic. Um, and so the minute you need one person, that person generally either needs to be paid or has to have some form of payment, whether that be on the back end, the front end, somewhere. Um, and so once you get into these, like, because cinema has that, I, I always like grapple with that cinema at its purest sense will always be connected to being a sellout, so to speak, because it innately is a sell. You're, you're, I have to, I lose control of my script the minute I step foot on a set. Whereas I might be less able to lose control of my fine art painting because I'm the one painting it. Now, I might have someone telling me you need more red or, or whatever. I don't know that world, so I don't want to sound too stupid. But in terms of cinema, you, you, you truly, the screenwriter, loses control like instantly. And then the director loses control relatively soon after he says the word action. And the actor loses control the minute the editor presses the space bar and plays the first clip. You know, it just keeps going. And and so it just it's tethered to that notion that like the commerce of it, that it's it's a money making vehicle, it's a it's a machine, it's part of a machinery, an industry, a very clear cut industry that you it's very hard to survive in without some some resources coming back in. I guess is my innate is my so central point. See, uh, I completely agree. It's it becomes problematic when you do need other people because it's it's a snowball. It's a hundred percent a snowball, and it's it's never gonna get smaller. Every added piece is an added person, or it's time removed from you. So it's either you're going to exclusively do the one thing with nothing else present and it's your one blinding thing in life and how are you going to get money to feed yourself? How are you going to get money to continue fueling the thing if you don't have... Okay, so now you need a job. So that's a little... That's at least eight hours a day you can't dedicate. So you need something to replace that. All right, I need an editor. Okay, fine. It's just me and an editor. 
All right. I'll act every part if I have to. Fine. You and an editor. You you do the acting. You record it. But you got to go to work. Time to give this to the... Now it's no longer in your hands. Okay. So you want to do the editing. That means you can't do the acting. So you need to hire the director. So, okay. You got to outsource something anyways. It doesn't matter how you look at it. Some piece is going to be lost. Some piece is going to be part of somebody else. That's why I, I, I would be so horrified. I am such a control freak. I would be so horrified, and I don't know how you do it, and I give you props in every possible way, to be able to bring somebody else in and to have some collaborative effort like that because I feel I would be unsufferable. I I could not be somebody anybody would want to work with. It would be too complicated because I have an idea, and it needs to be executed a certain way, and I have this vision, and nothing is going to corrupt that vision, and it is for me, by me. If I have to pay everybody, fine, but you still got to do what I say when I pay you, and I know know there's directors that do it, and and it works, and it functions, and they get, but they also have infinite budget, because they know they've already proven their way somehow. Which brings up the question, how the fuck did they do it to begin with? How did they prove it to then get to the position where they get infinite money to then be able to pay somebody to tolerate their crap? But you are doing something where you'll forever lose a piece of what you're doing to the next person added. So you had a vision for the character, and now you get this actor who was willing to do it after you screened many, and they're the most accurate to what you had in mind but now they still have their own personality and their own presentation and their own way of doing it. So you lost a little of what you imagined. Okay, you got five actors. You lost five actors worth of exactly what you envisioned. It might be close, but it's not exact. And then you have an editor. Okay, you can tell them everything you want, how you want it, the feel you want. They have their own style of editing. And they have their own methods and their own techniques and their own tricks. Okay, you lost a little something. It might be close, but it's, they're not in your head. It's not perfect. Before long, there's an estimate of a product. There's an estimate to what you wanted. And that's to say, before you even bring anybody in, you write it. And maybe there's just ways, things you can't figure out how to express the right way. So you're already estimating how you want to write it. You're already estimating how you want to express it because we can't externalize our inner workings perfectly. We can't. There's nothing like that. If there were, then we could convey perfectly our thoughts and we there would be no conflict in the world if we could convey perfectly what the inside of us is like. There would be no opinions. Everything would be factual. Nobody would have to opinionate. I could tell how you feel because you somehow conveyed a perfect image of how you feel. But we don't have that. You get as close as you can to what's in your head. Then you bring other people who take it a little further away from the original work. Then the editors take it a little further away. Then promoters take it a little further away. Think of the overpowered energy that comes with a single promotion. You finished your work. You finished the movie. The product is done. And now they present it in a way that gives the viewer an expectation. And so they come in with that expected perspective. And that perspective alone could change how they receive the film. So many nuanced details keep rotating and changing, and it just snowballs way out of control. And what you have and what you thought you'd have will never line up. That's horrifying to me. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, I, 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 the one thing I'll say is I don't actually believe that there are any um, – trying to think of the term – but like the perfectionist sort of, but it's not, that's actually not the right term. Um, 
you you had said earlier you were like oh I I, I don't like I know myself and I'm I'm very controlling and it, this is I don't think there are actually any directors that are truly like that. I think that that's a mythology that they've created through publicists and through the, you know, there's a, there's a massive machine behind all of this, right? That's like telling us how to feel and how to think about not only the movie, but the people who make them, particularly the people who make them that are very famous. Um, and so the ones that I think that are projected to us that are like these meticulous, you know, all, I think that if, if, the, the closer they get to that truth, the actual further they're getting away from what the language of cinema is, right? In that there are great filmmakers that are very strict about what they need. But generally speaking, they're very strict about the shot. But, but to, to, to expand and not to get too geeky, but like there are so many facets, right? Because then it gets into the shot to the sound, to the performance, to where the shot is coming from, the angle, all these things, the lighting, right? So like every choice that's made in that little string of things I just said, I've made choices that are now changing, either getting closer or further away from the screenplay. And the greatest place that I see this in my life, and I always have to get into particularly with my parents about this, is people who read a novel and then go and watch a movie. I, I don't, I don't pull this, but I think the polling's pretty bad for people generally walking out of that movie. If they truly love the book, they generally don't like the movie or they like the movie, but have massive caveats to it. And I think what the reason I brought that up is that I think it's the greatest example of what we're talking about in cinema, because those people are like the screenwriters. Those people fell in love with a book. They envisioned in the book the characters' looks, faces, hair color, whatever, how they talk, the smell of these spaces, the houses, the, you know, the scenery. When they go to that movie, all of that is destroyed for them. So they have a choice to make. And generally, like, it's almost like their children, they're going to be like defensive about it, which I understand why. But at the same time, I always say to them, I'm like, it's just an adaptation. Just like if I sat down and I was a good painter, I could do an adaptation of a famous Picasso. Doesn't mean I'm stealing his work. I could say mine's very different, but I'm, I'm, I'm using his as motivation and I'm calling it an adaptation of his blue period, whatever. And so I always get back to that because like that's, that's the innate, that's the truth about cinema, especially when you write this stuff because I, I've written every one of my films. But I've co-written them. But everyone I've ever co-written with, I tell them, I go, I'm just telling you, let it go. Like Elsa said, let it go. Because it's when I make this film, you're going to be pissed at me on most levels. And you're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, I'm just telling you, I'm going to make this film. And you're going to be very frustrated about some of the choices. And you probably won't be able to get over that because you're very connected to this story because you wrote it. And it means a lot to you. But that's the truth, you know? And, and so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, that's my point is that like, it's just at the end of the day, that's the exploration. See, see, I, I agree. And I more so agree with the problem with expectation, which is to judge something as compared to something else rather than 
as how it stands on its own. We've, for whatever reason, as a society, as a culture, as a planet, seemingly, have developed this habit of judging things as compared to. And I think that's the worst approach anybody could have to art, because you're trying to say, is it as good as, but not saying, is it good? Not saying, does it stand on its own, but relative to this other thing, how does it stand? And it's like, those aren't the same thing. They are by no means the same thing. They will never be the same thing. And it's gotten so bad that we're at the point where cancel culture got a hold of everything. And it's like, we don't like it. It has to stop. And why why do other people have the right to decide what somebody's vision is? Why does anybody get to decide what you, what, what the world inside your head looks like? What this thing you wanted to create, why do they get to say what it turns out to be? And I completely disapprove of that. It shouldn't be the case that the perception, the anticipation, that the anticipation of something should alter the self-standing perception and intention of the creator. And not only that, all work isn't for everyone. Things are for some, things are for none. Uh, what with the Little Mermaid problem? It's that same, it's the same exact issue. It's, that's not my Little Mermaid. It's like, okay, that was the creator's Little Mermaid though. That's who they envisioned that would be. That's how they thought it should look. That's what they were picturing in their head. Why does it matter what you think it should have been? You're not the one making it. You're not the, the director inside this human's head. You don't get to choose those things, but we've made it to that point where all of our personal opinions and ideas and perceptions decide what somebody's creative work turns out to be. And it definitely does affect things in such a negative light that it's almost inescapable at this point. We can't escape the fact that it keeps playing out in this fashion. It is incredibly weird. And I don't even know what the fix would be for this because the problem, I, I personally think this problem comes from the trophy. Everybody gets a trophy era. Where no, you know, we don't count losing everybody. You you get a participation trophy, and so your opinion matters, and your being present alone matters. Whether you're right or wrong, whether you won or lost, you matter, and it matters, and we should pay attention. And now those people became adults, and those people feel that hey, I'm never wrong. I was told this. I never lose. I was told this. And I think that shouldn't be that way, so I'm going to make sure that because I'm never wrong, it's never that way. And now we got outrage culture and boycotting everything under the sun. You boycott art? What's what's happening there? And it's entirely due to this weird perception we have that we, we should have the right to influence things and we should have the right to alter art it's a per and it existed beforehand like you said there are the people who read the book go watch the movie and they're like this isn't what i had in mind but they didn't boycott the movie's existence we somehow made that okay along the way and now the where i think it set up the the worst uh, uh i guess the standards that where we set up the worst example and the implications of it are with that sonic movie where Somebody thought that looked right. It was greenlit. Somebody thought that was fine. Somebody's vision was complete. And then people were like, this isn't what I like. And they decided, we're going to change it then. Because you don't like it. Because money comes first. And then they sold out on their original idea. And then they altered and morphed it. And this is what you guys want. 
But now you set that precedent. And now they know they can force you to do it. But how long before they force the next person because of what they thought should be? And are we killing art as a result? Are we sacrificing creativity because the money machine trumps everything and people's opinions runs the money machine? So now we have the money machine answering to the people and artists being shafted in the process. Yeah, well, I I believe there's, well, one, there's no doubt you lose something, right? I believe, like, you, you, with any movement, with any idea, you lose something and you gain something. That's just how I feel, right? So I think that you, and obviously there's, there's a lot to parse out, but I think that, like, let's take the Sonic example. I think that one of the things I thought was kind of cool about that, that, that situation was that for the first time audience, not maybe probably wasn't the first time, first time I can think of that an audience like, you know, dictated to a studio. Hey, I don't like this. This character's beloved doesn't look right to me. But at the same time, who do we listen to? Like, was it seven dudes on Twitter that were complaining and just had a lot of followers and they, like i don't know like that's where you parse it out like like where is the line in the sand where it's like well if 72 percent of the audience says it then we'll change sonic or is it 36 percent? like that's my thing is that nothing seems sort of sussed out and so we're sort of in this like wild west period i don't know if it's a period because i don't know if it'll end or how it'll end but i think that what i find fascinating and i'm going to tell you something i got to be straight with you I was a big Game of Thrones guy, and I was all on the the the, the bash the bash wagon. So I have to be. I don't want to be a hypocrite here. I want to. I want to come straight forward and tell every the world that I as I am also a Star Wars guy. So I on I was hypocritical, right? So on one hand, I'm telling all the Star Wars people, get over yourselves. It's just it's what they wanted to do with the story. Move on, right? But on the other hand, with Game of Thrones, I'm like petitioning. I'm signing petitions. I'm like, redo it. This is crap. So I, I guess what I glean from that for the, for our conversation is like, it's like this one, I, as a filmmaker, I think it's kind of cool in terms of audience participation, audience reaction, and seeing audiences fired up. But at the same time, as a, as a filmmaker, nowhere near the level where anybody would tell me to redo my work. But if I were in that scenario, I would find it really difficult painful actually so like i agree with you like there's two facets to it because in terms of the artists they sat there and they were like man this sonic is great i love this art great job awesome everyone's high-fiving let's put a trailer out let's do this and then all of a sudden it's like everyone hates it but is that like where are we now so they're gonna just like keep tweaking it and keep sending out the tweaked versions to see if they like it you know yeah it's the evolution of art it's 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 You're totally right. It's a weird, unique experience, and it's definitely fascinating in that aspect. And I would, I would go as far as to say, if the intention is for a collaborative piece where we get feedback and modify accordingly, and get feedback and modify accordingly, if that's the goal, more to you. That's amazing, and shit, there should be things. That thing is horrifying looking. There. There should definitely be projects like that. 
there should uh, make more. Make more of these weird collaborative things and ask for people's opinions and ask them not just how something looks, because let's be fair, that is horrifying and that is not something I would ever want to watch. But also somebody thought that was fine. And who am I to say this shouldn't exist because I don't like it? Yeah. But yeah, there should there should be a it should it should be that should be a thing that should be a thing. And we should have that and we should participate and we should create this thing that we just saw a glimpse of and make it so that that is the intention that that's where we start. And we're like, we're going to make the project and we're going to get feedback and we're going to modify and ask them not just for how it looks, but where do you guys think a story should go? And put it out on, tell them about the website they can go and give you a million different ideas and have a person whose job it is to read a billion different suggestions and pick the best ones and see where they go and then throw another suggestion and make a collaborative movie. That's weird. Have millions of people together make one project. Fascinating. Never existed before. But if it wasn't your intention and somebody tells you, you have to do this because they said so. We set a messed up precedent because we gave in and we told them the creator, the creative, the artist, the designer, the the coders, all these individuals, they don't fucking matter. They don't matter. That's they're not important. What where we get the money is important. That's all that matters. We're not here to create art. We're here to get paid. And that is a, a betrayal to the craft, to any artist, to people outside of that art in general. It is a unique double-edged sword, like you were saying. Yeah, and, well, and I also think there's, I, 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 I think about this a lot, is there's a, there's certain, there's like a credibility gap in that I think that if the Sonic film were, were directed by Martin Scorsese or, or Christopher Nolan, this this whole story would never have happened because those fans that were initially upset there'd be a credibility explosion in their face where it'd be no no it's christopher nolan trust us it's going to be awesome and the audience i truly believe would have backed down but in this in the situation of sonic and these kind of like i don't i don't know what to call them because to be honest with you i actually like the movie a lot so i want to put that out there um, I saw it with my son, thought it was pretty funny. Uh, but there's also an element to the Sonic movie industry, which I'll put the Transformer movie industry in there. Let's, let's put it is that there's a certain conveyor belt aspect to it that we as a public go in. And I think, I think that credibility gap is what made a little bit of that backlash have more power to it because there was no one of credibility to step in and say, guys, this is our art. You're going to have to deal with it. If you love Sonic, this is my exploration of the Sonic character. The best example is the Batman genre in terms of live action. Batman movies, generally, it's like they've gone, they've gone with all different angles on Batman. But because most of the movies have been made by very credible filmmakers, people are willing to accept and to go on that journey with that Batman. Because they're like, all right, well, it's, it's Christopher Nolan doing Batman. I don't know about, I don't know about, uh, uh, Christian Bale being Batman, but I'm going to go on this journey. But if it was a guy named Schlem Skiski, and that's who's directing, and you're going, I don't know who the hell it is. And I got to tell you, the Batman costume was really stupid looking. 
your that credibility gap is going to kill that situation, and they're probably going to because they'll probably fold the tent and go either fire the guy. And it actually happened in the Star Wars situation with uh, Colin Trevorrow, who got fired. I know there's a lot of other variables there, but I think part part of it was in terms of J.J. Abrams or him, they, there was a credibility gap between everyone knows J.J. Abrams. People love him. People hate him. But they, they know he knows a certain level of what he's doing, depending on where you fall in that spectrum. So I, I do believe in that in that context that that gap allowed that segment of the audience more power to to be able to manipulate and to get the, what they wanted to have happen because there was no one to come in front and say no 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 I'm making this this is the version of Sonic I'm doing join me for the ride or go to hell I don't care whichever no, you're totally one right. you want to decide you're totally right you're 100 percent right I didn't think of it like that but you're 100 percent right and it's it has to do with the fact like you said conveyor belt it, it, it's it's a product it's not art we're looking at a product because we we've grown to the disappointment of films that are made from video games we're used to this just being essentially a money making tactic and even if we're not consciously thinking about it all of that is already in our mind and it's like you're you're only making a product you're not choosing to make art your whole purpose was a product that you could sell and if you want us to buy the product it better be a product we want to buy there's nothing here to gamble on we're coming in for the thing you're promising that we already want you're not making art i'm not here to choose whether or i'm not here to opinionate on it i'm not here to decide how creative or what an interesting choice no it's a toy you made a toy this toy better work the way i'm told it works this better function and it better be worth the price of the toy and I'm not buying the toy if it's not what that 1999 and more price is telling me about. And that is 100% what totally happened. And you're totally right. Because if it is something like uh, uh, Christopher Nolan, we are looking for, we're looking at a guy who is known for making primarily art. His goal is art. He's trying to be weird. He's trying to be different. He's trying to make you sit back and think. To the point that it's arguable that in Batman, specifically The Dark Knight, it's such a profound film, you might argue that the Joker's the good guy in Batman, the bad guy. Because the Joker's trying to expose the corruption of the city. There's art. There's something to question. You can really sit back and look at it and think, did I come to this with a weird expectation and he blow my mind? Because I'm expecting this man to do this repeatedly. I'm expecting there to be art. I'm expecting there to be philosophy in the middle of every word and every shot be planned out to blow my mind. Not Sonic. That's a toy. Yeah. That yeah. You, you're yeah. pumping out a million and there's going to be a hundred million more if it comes out right. So it better come out right. And through cinema, that's the thing. What's really cool is like you could do an edgy, dark Sonic movie, right? Now, no one would probably let you make it, but you could do it. You know, that's the exploration. But I think what's really interesting about what you're saying is like it's that, you know, it's it's that balance. Uh, like I said earlier, like another example of of this, the, the art of cinema is always tethered to the cop, the commercial aspect of it. It can't get itself out of it. It can't free itself from it. It's, you know, there there are many art films out there that are pure art films that only people who seek them out are going to go see. And most people will not be able to attain them. 
just as you could go to the the museum or metro the metropolitan museum of art or whatever and see a dot on a canvas and explore that canvas i could see it and see what's happening there as art not me but someone who who understands art better than me could probably piece that apart and say here's what's happening this is what makes this profound but other people will go i don't get it i see a dot on the canvas um it's the same exact thing explored in cinema it's just that Everything in, in cinema, or not everything, most things in cinema are sort of geared going towards that. There has to be a financial element to it because how do I justify making this film? How do I justify the cost? All the elements that went into it and how, and, 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 and I, I really believe that that's sort of like at the backbone and this sort of like the constant collision of what's going on with cinema and the backbone and the, the sort of constant fight that's happening within cinema. And I mean, there's so many stories of it, you know, where we talk, like talk about these certain auteur type filmmakers who say, I fought and scratched and clawed to get this actor, or I fought and scratched and clawed to, to keep that murder scene in the movie because they said it was too much. Um, and, and in a way, in essence, you know, you, you asked me earlier about like the 12 year old girl and that whole experience, like that's part of it too. Right. You know, it's like saying, a, you know, a lot of studios might go, hey, we know the character's 12, but we don't feel comfortable with that. You know, make her 20 right there. Now I'm in a fight. Now they might say, well, then Colin, we'll find someone else to make it. But we're not going to make any money if she's 12. We just don't think that's, you know, so these are all the little dynamics happen in the context. And it's sort of this push and pull. Um, and then people on my level are more thinking about, like, how do I make a paycheck? And then how do I, you know, like. Like, how do I survive this game long enough to sort of maybe break through or maybe not, you know? Um, but those are all the sort of angles to it. I guess it's a fear in both directions, because it's a fear that you could potentially break out. And then what? Did my life suddenly change overnight? Um, they they offered me the big thing. And if I don't take it because I'm not ready, then is am I missing my opportunity? And if I do take it, how am I going to adjust to all these different changes? How am I going to... Can I make this? Am I a fake that's the big one. Am I a fake? Can I even do what's asked of me if it was presented? Or if I stay here and do this and do it every day and dedicate every paycheck and dedicate every minute and all my time and nothing ever becomes of it, did I waste my time? That, that bouncing in the back of the mind of how much of you is going into it and how much is a sacrifice. And if you do get the offer, are you then again sacrificing yourself in a different – because you're wondering if you're going to sacrifice yourself forever for no reason. But then you do get the the big presentation. Hey, we got a job for you and here's your giant budget and here's – but then you got to ask, I'm working for a giant company now. Am I sacrificing who I am? And it's like, you were sacrificing who you were before, but you were choosing which parts of you you were sacrificing. Now you're sacrificing who you are, but you don't get to choose what part of you you're sacrificing. Those those little nuances are have to be maddening. They have to be driving uh, anybody crazy. It's it's in, But you got to choose it, I guess. You got to be willing to ride that train to whatever stop it's going and not know what that stop might look like all the way there. And that is confusing and horrifying, but as an artist, you just do it and you just keep doing it. And maybe it does stop. Maybe it never stops. Maybe you write it and you die one day and you're like, I tried. Or maybe you make it and you take it and you regret it. Like, how do you know where you're going to land? 
it has to be horrifying. It has to be. But the fact that you do it anyways, I guess, is ultimately the point. And going back to the fact that there are these individuals that they have this capacity and this name behind them and this power that gets the budget and it gets the trust and it gets people to agree to it. It's almost uh, peaceful to think about the fact that they had to be where you are. There's no way they weren't. And that's very, it, it brings the volume down a little from all the noise in your head of, oh my God, this and oh my God, that. And you just think about, yeah, Christopher Nolan or J.J. Abrams or whoever. They they did do the struggle and how many indie films got buried and never saw the light of day or how many things that they do that didn't get received well. And they just kept riding the train. They ne not once got off. It's still going. And they're still witnessing every stop as it comes by and still haven't gotten off. And it's a very peaceful to know that creatives, it doesn't matter how, how, how far you go. It's a total gamble. It totally is. But it's sort of the excitement and the relief of it could, it might not. And if it does, maybe you don't even really want it to. Maybe the, the ride is what you're there for. Maybe just the trip. Maybe the destination doesn't matter. Maybe there is some uh, non-existent location ahead that you don't know what it looks like. You don't care what it looks like. You don't care who's there. You don't care where it is. It doesn't matter what's there. I'm here to enjoy the ride. There's scenery on this train, and I'm just here for that part. And it's also, it, it, I, I have these moments where I look in the mirror and I say, be careful what you look, what you wish for. And I, and what I mean is like, yeah, like I, I, you know, would I love to direct, you know, a, a Star Wars trilogy? <laughs> it's like, right. But then at the same time, like, do, would I be ready for, it? um, could I handle the pressure? That's the thing. I'm lucky. I've actually, I've worked on big sets. So I at least have some frame of reference, but not enough, but I have some. Um, but it's also like, like the amount of stress and pressure that those guys and women like have to deal with on those, like, cause, cause you're handling and not just Star Wars, Sonic, we just went through it. I mean, who, who, who stamped, who, who put the stamp down and said, Sonic's ready. We're ready to go. Let's get this out to the public. Right. Yep. And is that guy in the firing line? It wasn't the director, probably, right? I'm assuming. I don't know. I, I I can't say for sure. I wasn't there, but like, but like, it goes back to what you said. So that technically, he's he's should be tarred and feathered because what he came up with failed miserably. What he what he's rubber stamped. What he signed off. He, so that means doesn't that mean his instincts are awful? And isn't that why we're hired and what we're brought in to do? But at the same time, was it or was it the mob mentality of the of a certain faction of the audience dictated that that character looked horrible and it was not good and it didn't work? And it's it's like that's what I really I don't have to grapple this at this point, maybe someday. But I'm, I, I kind of always remind myself that I'm like, it's kind of what you said, by the way, the journey is is the thing. It has to be because if, if the journey is not the thing. And man, this ain't, this is just not the right world to go down. Because if you're not into the journey, it's probably just going to be the journey for most of us, including myself. You know, when there's nothing, I said that, is it, is it sad? I don't think so. Because what can you do? I, I can't guarantee that someone's ever going to go, that guy's talented. Bring him on. 
We got a, We got the Star Wars script sitting here waiting to be directed. Get that guy on that now. That story, that little snippet I just told you is like, I might as well think I'm going to win the lottery by grabbing a lottery ticket to there. That's how, uh, rare that is. So you got to kind of embrace the journey because it's probably likely the only part that will happen for me. And so, and I do, you know, I do really enjoy it. I mean, I, I don't like, and I'm trying to be all hallmarky about it. Uh, Remy's Demons was a was a torturous, nightmarish uh, experience shooting it, and I wanted I had many moments of wanting to jump out of a window or harm people uh, or whatever. You know, like I was just in a bad place about the whole thing. But but honestly, but but that's that's part of the deal. Like you you know you it, it's like this this constant war that you're fighting. The stuff we went over earlier, you're fighting all this commerce and. How am I going to survive doing this? I need money. I need resources to, is this working as an art form? Is this movie make any sense? That's another thing. Like I always marvel at the simplest things now that I make movies. When I watch them, I will literally applaud you if you were able to tell a concrete story that made sense. I will, because I will go, I understand that that's actually an accomplishment now (laughs) for me, like having seen that. So that, that's, you know, those are sort of my things. But yeah, I mean, I think that, like, that's, I don't know what your thoughts on that were, but. Well, actually, I got something to grab onto there, and it's that you, you are, it is particular, I couldn't, couldn't even comprehend how difficult it is to make any kind of film. But what you mentioned about Remy's Demons brings in an interesting point. Like, yeah, you gotta balance all these thoughts. And, uh, I keep thinking that, you know, artists do bleed themselves into their work. I think almost inevitably, sometimes subconsciously, you're just putting you into there without knowing that that's even what's happening. Whatever might be happening in your life just makes it into the writing at the moment you're writing it in some manner, shape, or form. And you put it in there and you didn't even notice it was in there maybe 20 years down the line. You're like, oh, I was kind of going through that at that moment or whatever the case might be. Do you think that uh, uh, this happened in Remy's Demons, that there is sort of things that you were writing that were reflective of your state of mind at the time, considering like, how is this going to look? How am I going to do it? How am I going to get the people? Uh, how am I going to tell a story you said you were thinking of? Maybe I'm going to have to make the killer older for something previous. Like those thoughts that come into Remy's demons of maybe I got to change a character because it's inappropriate or maybe something happens to somebody, uh, Remy himself. And the fact that he's dealing with all these internal issues all these different problems are is Remy to some degree you is the the details the demons both literally and the metaphoric ones that he's dealing with is that all what the inside of your mind looks like but not a world you're building just the inside of your mind and you turned it into a world on its way out because that's the only way it could come out because that's your process of I have to expel my demons and it came out as this do you think you're that far into your work that it bled to that point and maybe subconsciously who knows maybe you you don't think it did and 20 years down the line you look back and you're like oh shit that was me or maybe it wasn't maybe it was uh details but where do you stand on that do you believe that there's a lot of you engraved into this work i do not not until you said it but but in in you're the first person to ask that uh, of me. Um, if I'm being honest, I think I'm drawn to 
people that are quirky or uh, maybe maladjusted, because I think I have that, you know, in me and part of who I am. So I think that in essence, like, because um, I know that like when I was writing it, I felt this such a, a closeness to him, to the character. And I, I know that. And then as I was filming it and then, well, filming it, not so much. But when I was editing it, I felt that again. And it almost like I wanted to like hang out with him, you know, but he's not real. Right. But I wanted to hang out with him. And I think that's part of that, because like maybe I was maybe not so much me, but maybe I was creating like a friend. Maybe I, maybe I was creating like a guy like me that I could hang out with or something, you know, um, I'm sort of spitballing here because I'm, I'm thinking it's a great question. I'm like, and I think you're on to something. I'm just trying to like, I'm working it through. Is that like, you know, maybe, um, there's a lot of me and it's like the brother I wanted or something or like a best friend that I, you know, I was sort of like, you know, or, or, uh, or, 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 or honestly, you know what? Thinking about it. I mean, I've never been fully comfortable with myself. You know, because I'm a little bit of a weird dude. Um, definitely growing up. And so maybe Remy's very comfortable with himself, even though he's an oddball. And he doesn't have much friends. And he's isolated, right? And so maybe it's really an external uh, image of what I think, I, how I think I should experience myself. That I shouldn't be afraid to to be exactly who I am in public or in, in, in the, in the, in to the world. Um, I'm not able to do that, but maybe it's, maybe that's part of what that, you know, because it is, it's, it, it, when you were asking a question, it's like innately, like I write these things. I co-wrote it with Josh Kaza, a little shout out, but I have to be honest, co-wrote it with Josh Kaza, but it was my initial idea. And then I brought it to Josh. And what I'm getting at is why did I come up with it? Like, what was this idea about? I could have come up with anything. I could have come up with a bank robbery gone wrong and the guy cuts the guy's head off, you know, like, but why did I innately choose to do this story about this, this quirky dude and his mom and like what, you know, so th that's true. Like, like it's, it's interesting for, like I said, that's the first time I've been asked that. It's like, I'm like, I'm kind of uh, fascinated by the question because it's like, I think it does draw back to like that question of like, why do we tell why do these write, you know, director writers, why do we come up with these stories? Like, what are we, what are we trying, you know, what, what are we exploring? Cause it's nobody told me, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's a very, very distinct thing. Someone could tell you like, Hey, go write a script. I got a great idea, but you're a great screenwriter. Go write a script about this Bonnie and Clyde. Right. All right. Then you go and write it. But your skill is that you go and write it. You put it on a, your skill is that you can write dialogue and you can write scene structure and you can write great narrative and you pump out a script and the guy's like, man, this is a masterpiece. Amazing. But the, in this case, it's not that right. It's like you're sitting around and you go, I want to write this. I don't know why, but I want to write this like whirly, quirky, small story about a few people <laughs> experiencing the world in their own little quirky and to be straight with you, I have always kind of gravitated to that. So like you're, yeah, I mean, there's definitely something going on there. Cause why am I always gravitating to like these kind of characters and these small kind of stories, uh, character driven things. I love your answer to that 
because it it goes to a bit of uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Fight Club, but it, it it's very reflective of sort of you said you're trying to portray potentially portraying how you feel you should perceive yourself to the world or whatnot which is interesting because you're essentially making a tyler durden you're making the possibility of what could have been and then exploring that through the character and the writing and the story being told by confronting the person, even if in a fictional world, how many of those scenes are based on, in reality, minus the supernatural elements? How much of that is just something somebody would have gone through on a regular day of their lives? And the approach is what you wish you could have done, how you wish you could have resolved it. It comes back to the idea that we, let's say we have an argument, we go home, and the argument is passed, but all you do is think about how I could have said it, what I should have said, when it should have been said. And even if you think you let it go, and you're ignoring it, and you thought about it for that whole day, but the next day you got over it or whatever, it just sat there because you gave it so much time. It sat there and it got shelved somewhere in your memory. It was a big chunk of that day, at least. And then later when you're creating something like Remy's Demon's those little bits, they stored up one moment here, one moment there, ten moments over there, a couple of these, a couple of those. And before long, it's a collection of all the things you wish you could have done different or you wish you could have approached different or you could have explored or at least thought of in a different way. So it's you, but not you, but a version of you that could have been or might not or is Maybe it's who you are now that you maybe you're more comfortable with who you are and maybe you're portraying the person, the circumstances of when you felt uncomfortable with the personality of feeling comfortable and solving those problems again, almost therapeutically as who you are now by recreating them and then confronting them with more confidence, with the confidence you have now in a character that is a reflection of you. It, there's so many possibilities of how it you you fall into the work, and I would say relative to somebody giving a script and telling you to write something that we told you to write. So you got Bonnie and Clyde. Here's the script. This is how it's gonna. This is what it should be. Uh, go away, write it, and bring it back. I would argue even that writer, that creator, still manages to put themselves into how it's executed. Into the word selection, into the word choice, into the the direction they chose to go, into uh, how the scene played out. Yeah, the scenes were planned ahead of time, but I had to write it, and I chose this person over here and that person over there. And I think those two interacting makes more sense than these two interacting, and it's entirely based on them remembering some other group of people who interacted that way. And they were fascinated by that, and it was a personal experience, even if it wasn't their experience per se. I, I think inevitably we bleed into our work that's why i put the question forward i do think no matter what inevitably we are our work there's there's no way to escape it and i believe in the contrast to the opposition that who we are in the real world is never who our art is if we look at some of the for example tom york the musician of radiohead he is yeah. very very vocal and funny and bright and exciting and then you listen to his music and there's little music more bleak or darker and then you listen to somebody like jack white who is very quiet and very reserved 
And then you listen to his music and he's all over the place and loud and obnoxious and confrontational. Eminem, same exact thing. He's very upfront and confrontational and very exposed and open about anything and no limits and doesn't care. And then you see the man and he's very calm and quiet and collected and private. And you look at actors, Johnny Depp, who's more notoriously quiet and private than Johnny Depp, just quiet and simple. But then you look at the characters he plays and what he brings to them, and they've got this flair and this loud, exaggerated nature to them, almost like like Nicolas Cage. This exaggerated thing, and then you go and you interview Nicolas Cage, and he's just a soft-spoken guy. And I, I think we're all the opposite of what our art is, because we're expressing what we couldn't in any other way. So I, I wouldn't put... I, I would say that maybe you caught it right in just thinking about it and assuming that you are reflecting something or some way you would have wished to approach or a way you wish you could present yourself or you should have presented yourself. Because our art is our Tyler Durden, no matter who we are. It is the side of us we don't expose. And this is the only way it makes it out. At least I think it is. I don't know. Yeah, no, I... I, I um. I was thinking because, like, you know, you think about what what, what I'm exploring is like, you know, I wonder if there's a connection between that exploration from any artist. Because I was just thinking, like, some of the most famous ones that came to my mind is like, it seems as though they're very in touch with that, like, your question. Like, what I mean is, like, it seems like they're very aware, like, self-aware of the things they're lacking or the prejudices or the anger or animosities or, or sadness from their lives, and they're expressing it in detail through their art. And I wonder if that's kind of, like, if that's, like, innate to it is, is what, like, maybe... Because I, I... Fact stories, I always kind of, like, I love to think about why movies work, why a song works, why uh, art, paintings, sculpture, like why they work on us and some don't, right? Um, obviously, there's there's a lot of factors at play with that, but I also wonder that like we connect to, to your question as an audience. And if that's, if that, if there's, there's not much there, then we don't connect at all. And therefore the art Falls flat, um, or the work falls flat. But if there's, if there's something there for us to cling to, to understand that the artist is it, the, the artist was working through something or thinking about something or analyzing something within themselves, without themselves, like that they're, you know, that we connect to that, 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 that. And, and what I always find fascinating is like, there is, there seems to be a baseline to like, to society where like, we do all seem to agree on certain art forms, you know, to, to an extent. Now there's, there's people who love stuff and there's people who hate it, but there's, it's like, we do sort of come to a consensus on certain artists, certain filmmakers where we're all like, yeah, they're pretty good. I'm not going to deny they're pretty good. And I wonder if it's that there's something about why they're, they were able to achieve a level of greatness you know, in part because of what you're talking about. Your question is like, they were either aware of it or they were unafraid to dive into themselves to figure out what they need to express. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you're totally right. I think uh, we are talking about a person, a type of individual that sees their, I don't know how to word it, their their private side. It's, they see their, 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 their dark, they see their sad, they see their, uh, all, the taboos, all the taboos that they are unwilling to show to the world in any other form, but they're aware of them, not just they see them as in, oh no, this is my fault, but rather they are understanding of this is a facet of human nature that to somebody else is just how they approach the world and to me it's something that's hidden in the dark and i push under the rug and nobody gets to see and and i think you're definitely right i think there is a confrontation of that on the page or on the screen or in the lyrics that is i guess that's when we what we're talking about is relatable I guess that's where relatable comes to exist. Because even if we might think of Christopher Nolan, we might think of him and think, okay, this guy is uh, exploring something really weird. Okay, we got a space movie, a sci-fi, and he's talking about time, and he's talking about this and that, and we don't really understand what the approach is. But the he, he just happened to cover what he's exploring in that. Which, in a simple scene, if we think of um, this guy, what the hell is his name in the movie? The the freaking the cowboy guy. I always forget uh, his freaking name. Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey. When he's at on the ship, they got off the planet, and however much time uh, went by. By the way, the movie I'm talking about is called um, what the hell was the name of the movie? Oh, there you go, Interstellar. Thank you very much. Interstellar. So the movie we're talking about is Interstellar. And in there's a scene in that movie where he's sitting watching how long went by. And he's sitting watching videos of his daughter in the what was like three hours, maybe less, that he was on that planet surface and turned out to be her entire life for the most part. She's a grown adult. She's tired of sending messages into the ether, into nothing. And we might see it as an interesting sci-fi conundrum. But what he's exploring is the most relatable aspect of humanity. My daughter's going to grow up at some point. My daughter is going to maybe not want to talk to me as much because she's going to have her own life. And she Now, those nuanced details are what our psychology, our subconscious mind grabs while our conscious mind is distracted by the sci-fi nature of it. And that relatability, that confrontation that he's willing to just explore, how do I feel about this? On the screen, in front of everybody, has a almost psychopathic level of honesty to it. Just like, here it is, what it is, and it's exposed for everybody, and yeah, the character's gonna cry. And yeah, the character's gonna panic all at the same time, and he's gonna see the daughter grow up, and he's gonna hurt and feel it, but that's your character. That's that's you. You made that thing. Even if it's Matthew McConaughey playing it, it's you he's playing. Even if that scenario never happened, even if those moments don't exist, you're expressing you because you made it. This didn't exist before you. And it is you, even if it's not you. But the honesty behind it, the approach, the exploration of that is, I guess that's what becomes relatable. That's what we do magnet to, and that's where we unanimously as a society, as a culture, look and we're like, that was good. But why was that good? Because that connected. 
But why did that connect? Because it was real. Wait, but it was a sci-fi. No, 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 but it was a real sci-fi. And I think that's what we mean by those things, by write what's true, write what's real. You know, those cliches we always hear, write what's, write what's true. Okay, what, what's true? Everything there was true. The events didn't have to be realistic for them to be true. And I think that's what we're looking for. We're looking, we're, we're commenting on the truth and honesty behind the creator. And that's what we get from something like that. That's what we get from exploring morality in something like Batman. That's what we get from exploring uh, psychology in one film and wondering if we're good in another and wondering if this is justice or if this is equal to crime or whatever the case might be in any of these works. I think you're definitely right. There is, when we agree, it, it, I think it's because of that. It's because there's honesty and relatability and we're seeing the creator through their work. Yeah, and I love that you brought up Batman. The, the uh, you actually mentioned it a while ago, but like the idea that the Joker is arguably the good guy um, is that it's like I think that's that's the key. I really believe strongly in the idea that the 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 to to make a really great movie about something like that, a Batman thing, an action thing, or like horror, even whatever. It's like the villain. It's it. You have to make it the villain relatable and and understandable to a level. So you walked away and you understood what the motivations for the Joker were, and you were able to sort of make your own choices and say, I actually don't think the Joker uh, was that far off. I don't think the Joker was the bad guy. Someone else might say, I disagree. Joker was horrible. He did this, this, and this. And I'll extrapolate that out to I. I think that like cinema documentary, like whatever is, is if you notice, I had this profound for me experience the other day as I was watching Breaking Bad and I, I've watched the show like three times. It's one of my favorite shows, full disclosure. An amazing show. And, and I'm watching this and I said to myself, I said, you know what? And again, this isn't exactly about Breaking Bad, but it's a bigger picture thing is that I was like, what's really interesting about like film and television and, and our and the way we ingest all of this is um that we if the movie and tv show whatever it is if the story does it right and the story's about the bad guy because breaky bad is technically about the bad guy is that in essence i'm rooting i'm rooting for walter even though he's horrible and he kills people in during the show and he actually gets people killed innocent people killed um throughout this story but in the end i'm actually on his i'm on his side i'm rooting for him in the same way that if you watch the show narcos somehow some way i'm rooting for pablo escobar to outwit the dea that makes no sense technically right it makes no logical sense and to me what i keep getting back to is i think that's sort of it i, I think that's like the beauty of of what this these and it's not just cinema, it's books and storytelling, any kind of storytelling. I think that's what the beauty of it is, is that once we're allowed into the essence of an individual, we start to understand that there is a shared human, human experience that we all relate to. And therefore, we it's harder to purely demonize people for their actions. Whereas when we just hear about Pablo Escobar through newspaper art, and it's just this phantom magical evil man i'm just straight up like yeah they need to gut 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 the dude in front of the town square in front of a thousand people 
string him up and bleed him out in front of everybody. That's how horrible a guy he is. But then when I watch a show where I'm seeing he's overweight, he's sitting by a fireplace and he's burning his money and he's like sad looking, I'm now relating to him. I'm like, oh man, this poor guy. I want him to get out of there. I want him to get away. You know, it's like, and Walter White, same thing. It's like, I find it so fascinating because it's like, why are we rooting for the bad guys in a lot of these stories, you know? Well, I, 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 what you're saying is so fascinating because it, it immediately makes me think of um, Thanos. It immediately makes me think of Thanos, where this is a movie that was constructed in such a clever way that, one, he's the main character. The focus on the entire movie is predominantly on the bad guy. We're watching him go from place to place, collecting these stones. We get glimpses of what everybody's doing, but we don't focus on any one good guy throughout this whole thing. The only consistent focus of the entire film is Thanos, and for one purpose, to show us his memories, to show us his experiences, and to connect us to the fact that this is a guy who's suffering. We only see him as the bad guy because he's against the good guys. But from his own perspective, he's saving not just one person, not just a planet. He's saving the universe. And we can relate to this. He saw tragedies and he saw monstrosities. He saw atrocities. He saw what happens when a civilization starves, when there's overpopulation and the problems that come with it and how they turn each other into animals and people attack each other and pillage and rob and steal. And he saw the darkest things of intelligent life come out of personal experience. And it made him just want to do one thing, which is I have to stop this from happening anywhere else ever. I have to stop it because it is so horrible. Half of these people are never going to suffer and the other half are going to be blinked out without any pain, without anything, just perfectly fine. And as people, we relate to our own suffering and our own wanting to do things that even if our solutions are sometimes broken and they don't always pan out the way we thought they would and we think this was going to work and then it failed some manner, shape, or form, we're, we're grabbing that aspect of it's human, it's normal, it's real to do something the wrong way because you thought it was the right way. And we can relate to making mistakes because that's what we do. We're human. And I guess, I guess that's really what it is. We don't want a, um, a superhero because we can't relate to that. We want mistakes and humanity because that's what we can relate to. And if there's no mistakes and there's no humanity, why are we here? We, we, we look at why the DC films do terrible. You have cold bad guys that are evil for the sake of evil. You have superheroes that are good just because they're good. And you without bat without counting Batman. Batman seems to be this bubble of an exception when it comes to, to DC work. He exists on this whole other platform of his own. But when we see all these other people, Superman, it's just who cares? Why do we? Why would we care? He's not hurt, yeah. and he gets over it quickly, and he confronts everything easily, and he just disposes of the bad guys like they are nothing. And the closest conflict is when the bad guy simply becomes as powerful as he is or brings them down to their level of weakness. But there's no morality. There's no humanity. There's no... There's no fuck-ups on the part of Superman in any relatable way. There's no mistakes happening that we can relate to so 
no mistakes equals no humanity. No humanity equals no relating, and then we're disconnected. But you bring in Walter White, and we're like, yeah, sometimes I feel like the situation I'm in is so bad. The only way I can support my family is if I go and sell drugs. And yeah, you say it joking around, but he probably said it joking around. And then the show was based on that premise of what would happen if I jokingly went and did this. And those ideas, that humanity behind it, the, if I'm in a bad situation and I feel cornered, am I the type of person who would take a life? Can I contemplate this? Walter White questioned this for days, or a couple of hours. I'm not sure how they played that. I don't remember too clearly. But the guy in the basement, he was just questioning, is this who I am? If I, my family is screwed if I get caught. If this guy gets out, I, I got to get rid of him and dispose of him. That's so human because in that moment, at least in the beginning of the show, he was really thinking about his family. He was really committing these thoughts to, I could, I can't mess up because I have people that depend on me. And that is so human to put all that weight on yourself just thinking about another person. Obviously, as time goes by, we already got clung to him and they cleverly guide us so that no matter how dark it gets, we're already on this ride with him. And they make sure to always wheel us back in. If if they're starting to lose us, we always that that show is phenomenal for that reason. But they do that really well. And even at the end, they do particularly Breaking Bad does something really amazing, which is they connect us to Jesse's sadness and then make us see Walter White feel like Jesse is his surrogate son. And they wheel us back in that way. When he's already too far gone as a monster, they find a different anchor and bring us back that way. But the whole time they're doing one thing, and it's connecting to our humanity. If you had a son, no matter how fucked up your son was, that's your son. And you're going to do whatever it takes to always be there for them. And they took that anchor. They brought the most human aspect they could find and kept us grounded and kept us there the whole way until the very end. And then at the very end, we literally root for him even more because what he did, he did it for his son. That's so astounding, so profound, and so deep that I think to put a little bow on it, it's humanity we're looking for. And when we don't see it, we don't care. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. You brought up um, Infinity War because I, um, I of the movies, I that one was by far my favorite, and it was simply because of Thanos. It was simply because I had ne I, I had rarely seen a comic book villain, particularly like depicted in that manner, and the fact that they allowed for a gray area that his you know, there was this gray area of the journey and like they, they, they decided to let these folkloric heroes kind of like their, their motivations being kind of like not sure, you know, cause they didn't know, you know, like they, and I love that, that they, they played with that, the writing played with that contrast of like, yes, Thanos is doing what he's doing and he's the, the bad guy, but it was also like the characters, even in the second one, they had a clear, path forward right but in the first one infinity war i think that one of the things i really liked was that they there was a lot of times where they kind of let the characters allude to they weren't sure what they were doing they weren't really sure what was happening fully and why they were supposed to beat this guy it was almost like they activated their superheroism and they just went into and they were like 
wait, what are we doing? What is our motivation? And I love that they played around with that, that context. And, and I agree with you. I think that like, for instance, I, I think that to do, I, I think that innately to have us care at all, it's like you said earlier about like Walter White, like you have to give us those, that motivation of the bad guy and also show us that the bad guy has wants and needs that just like I do. Yes. So, uh, and of course, not all bad guys are the same, right? There are some bad guys that are just simply in a story. They're just simply bad. And their motivations are, are very hard to tell. And so that story is much more about the heroes and their journeys and their experiences and their humanity. Whereas the bad guy, I'm just honestly thinking about Friday the 13th off the top of my head. Because in that storyline, like we, we, not till much later do we even understand Jason at all and why he's killing everyone. But it's not super necessary in that that movie has a different, it, what it's trying to do with those stories. And by the way, it's not the highest of art, but like what they're trying to do with those stories is a little different. Same thing with Halloween. Um, Very so interesting. I don't want to come across on saying it I, always has to be like this, like dynamic, because I do think it works sometimes where the, the bad guy is just black and white is evil. Um, but I think that there's a strength to it when we have to grapple with our humanity and going like, I'm kind of rooting for the bad guy right now. I see. I, ne I never thought of it like that, but you're totally right. That is actually, I've, I've never shared this perspective at the same time as getting an example of the opposite while it makes sense, but you're completely, completely, completely right in something like Jason in something like uh what is it Freddy Krueger those films you have a villain that's essentially evil cuz evil and it doesn't matter why he's the villain because he's just the monster you're trying to freak out the characters with so that we so that we see reveal of the characters, I guess, character. We get to see who they are. We get to see how they respond to the circumstance. It definitely doesn't matter. And later down the line, we might find out about the villain, but I feel like it almost takes away from the fact that he should just be there to blindly kill. And it actually plays out that way in which those are the least well-received it tends to be that those are the ones where we're like, you ruined the fact that he was evil. Now he's not evil. Now he's just a guy who suffered a little. And well, I guess now we feel bad for him rather than he was scary at some point because he was unreadable and dark and mysterious and unflinchingly wanting to take a life. And that aspect of it does bring in the fact that that circumstance allows us all the time to look at the hero. A hundred percent. And we get to see things that maybe in a film where we're trying to humanize the bad guy, we would miss some facets of the good guy because we're trying to create a balance rather than put all the focus on one. So I never actually thought about that. That was very interesting. Uh, uh, yeah. And I'll tell you an anecdote is that like um, going back to that movie I was talking about with the girl, the 12 year old killer. Um, when I, the first draft of that script, the idea was that, the killer, you wouldn't even know the killer, who the killer was till the final shot of the movie. And the big, big reveal, right? 
So I made the film and then I kind of, I shot it and then I was editing and I kind of realized I was like, I was like, no, I, I, I don't think this works. I, I think the, the audience has to understand a little bit of what's going on because it's way too out of nowhere. And people were, I could just, I, I hadn't shown it to anyone, but in my mind, I was like, people are going to really fail to understand the context of any of this. And I, when I wrote it, I thought that was fine. But in watching it, I was like, no, no. And then I realized, I was like, there is no precedent for that either. Because Psycho was a big uh, draw for me. It was a big movie I was trying to, I was taking from and, and learning from for that movie. And, but then I realized, I was like, Norman Bates is, is the killer, the bad guy. And it's, it's, it's not about the re, the reveal that is, that his mother is dead. And we reveal that later in the movie. It's that Norman Bates is the killer. But throughout the, the movie, even though we don't know he's the killer, we're getting introduced to him. We're seeing who he is. We're seeing his motivations. We're learning about his background. And we actually, what's so brilliant about that film is we actually, are lied to. We're introduced to him like he's just this cheeseball guy that isn't going to factor into this story. And so that even more fascinates me because he's just plugged in and you're going, I like this guy. He's kind of nerdy. I think he might try to hit on this girl, the woman at the hotel, but that's it. And so that really made me realize, I was like, no, I have to write something. I had to write, I had to add some scenes at the beginning of the film to, to define the, the bad guy a little bit more as to her motivations and why she does what later happens. I didn't do it very well. I'm going to be the first to admit that. But that was actually a very lo- big learning lesson, and it, it deals a lot with what we're talking about because I realized that these are the contexts that, like, it, it's, it's really hard to pull off a story, any kind of story, if the audience has no idea what the bad guy's about at all. It just, it's, it's, you know, you're just all even ghost stories and things like that. Like they always add some form of exposition where someone tells a tale about the 1850s and how the, the evil witch once did this and now she's in purgatory. You know what I mean? They always give that backstory. And that's why, because we as an audience, we have to have a, some semblance of what makes this person evil or why they're doing what they're doing. Now, again, like there's a gradient to it, like we talked about. You know, um, you know, Thanos was giving us a very, uh, his perspective, you know, he was like, he, he thought he was doing good. And then Walter White is just trying to give his family money and, and has ego stuff involved. I mean, it, you know, Pablo Escobar, I mean, it just goes down and down in each case, but it strengthens those stories. Um, I do think there's a profound implication to this about greater society. Uh, and this is what I'm grappling with right now beyond just storytelling is that like, I wonder if that's an innate element is that like, it shows that no matter who we are and where we come from, if we see the humanity in someone, we somehow relate to them and a lot of the other stuff falls away and we can now root for that person, even if we hate them, even if we hated them initially for whatever reason, there's something Again, like I said, I'm still exploring this, but I do think there's something about the fact that an audience can go and watch a movie about a terrorist, but somehow kind of like the guy and root for him against the Central Intelligence Agency trying to get him or Walter White. You know, 
I don't think that's just a storytelling mechanism. I think there's something about the human experience where if we're given a chance to see what these people's motivations are and what they're going, we might not villainize them as clearly as we do. I, uh, I completely agree. Uh, there's these, uh, creations, these works are feeding into a psychology that makes a heavy commentary on how we perceive our world and what we believe acceptable at any moment. And not just what we believe acceptable, but the reasons they are made acceptable to us. Blind evil, we we say, no, that's bad. But if we understand the motivations, they're no longer evil. They are somebody's interpretation of a necessary step that needs to be taken to either solve a problem or get something done or accomplish some task. And definitely those things, those films, those shows that focus on the villain or humanize the villain, even if they might not be the focus, are are feeding into that psychology that maybe there is something to be said for how humanity does need, or not need, because you don't want to humanize somebody like Hitler. You don't want to make that acceptable. But in our fear of humanizing him, we do miss the fact that that kind of was a person and there was something there that kind of pushed him into it. And there was an ultimate idea that they didn't wake up one morning and they're like, well, I'm evil now. No, he thought steps had to be taken. Now, I see how that's dangerous. And in certain circumstances, like Hitler, you don't want to really explore that. Let him be. You need to point out that this is dark and this is horrible and we shouldn't have sympathy for somebody who does that. But it does feed to that nature that when we don't have it, that's the only way we can hate somebody. That we can be truly disliking and 100% disapproving of an entire planet about an idea or a concept. But the moment that we understand the motivation, we sort of lose the hate and lose the anger, and now we're relating. And when we're relating, it doesn't matter how dark or how bad, we are suddenly feeling sympathy, and we're suddenly understanding their point of view. Now, we are definitely running out of time here, so it was very fascinating to talk to you. Uh, let everybody know where they can find all of your socials, all films, your works, anything you want to plug. This is your moment right now. Thank you, and thank you for having me on. This has been awesome. And uh, yeah, please go check me out on Instagram, particularly at Bressler Productions. Uh, Instagram at Bressler Productions. Uh, that's, um, and my website for, that's my production company. Uh, my website is bresslerproductions.com and you can see, uh, trailers for my movies. Uh, I do a lot of other stuff, uh, of videos, different types of videos, corporate videos, reality television, documentary. And, um, and also, um, please go check out my films if you thought the things that we're saying here were interesting or that films sound interesting or, or you just like movies, go to Amazon Prime Video, um, Remy's Demons, uh, Remy's Demons, uh, Domestic Hell, Bloody Drama are available on Remy's Demon, uh, sorry, are available on Amazon Prime Video for streaming. So you just punch it in the little search bar there um, and you can go see those films. And like I said, on Instagram, at Wrestle Productions, I 
I, I post there a lot of like behind the scenes stuff and what are, what we're doing with the production company and where are we writing something? What's coming out? What's new? Uh, and reviews of the films. So check that all out and, uh, and thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Before we get off, uh, give them a quick summary of Remy's Demons from your perspective. So Remy's Demons is a story of a, I, a man on the spectrum, the sort of Asperger's autism spectrum. I don't like to define exactly where or how, but, uh, and basically he is, it's, I like to describe it as a middle of age, coming of age love story horror film. And it follows Remy and Remy's mother happens to be into the occult and demon possession and Satanism. And that's all he's ever known. And so Remy, things happen in Remy's life that make him have to sort of re-examine all the things he's ever known and ask himself, what do I believe in and what is faith to me? Man, it was fascinating to talk to you, dude. It was definitely a very great... Uh, it's way more focused than I thought it would be. Usually we're all over the place. I like how focused and on topic this was. We definitely dove way into uh, the industry respective to, to art, creation, the economics of filmmaking. And uh, I, I love how in love with it you are. There is something to be said about somebody who likes what they do and does it because they love it primarily. And that, that always leads to the best things when you love what you're doing. And, uh, I, I, it's exciting just to know that you love it that much. It's, it's a rare thing to find somebody who wants to do what they do without any other motivation that it is for the love. And I, I applaud that. That is such a rare, astounding thing. And you really do sit down and you think about how to approach it and what is right and what is wrong. And you care about other people despite your work. Like, regardless of what the work might be, you really do care about other people relative to it, which is another thing that is not common. It is some people just only put the art... Like, I, I'm one of those people. I'm not the most loving when it comes to my art. And I'll be the first to admit that, that you do have a capacity to balance your humanity and the art while the majority of the planet seems to lose one or the other. They either sacrifice their art entirely and thus become sellouts or... Uh, have no humanity to them and are just drones that pump out the product or whatever the case might be. Uh, I, I love that you managed to achieve balance with that and that's highly respectable and I, I do wish the best for all you do, man. You are a profound person. There is a lot of depth in what you're doing. I, I definitely enjoyed this conversation a lot. Wow. Yeah, I did too. Thank you so much for having me and I I really appreciate you bringing me on it's a big deal to me and and thank you so much for letting me come on hey no problem man i, I this was pretty fun I, I enjoyed this conversation a lot this is definitely one of my favorite and one of the few that stays on topic so uh wow. to your All focus right. <laughs> yeah hats off to your focus man it was definitely a great conversation and uh enjoy the rest of your night man and i'm gonna let you go you too take care take thank care you. man have a good one Did I see the movie cycle? Yeah, do you remember it all? Uh, no, yeah, sort of. I remember the guy who does Batman, Christian Bale, was this uh, super dressed up fancy no, guy. No, that's the wrong cycle. 
That's American. Ameri- That's American Psycho. American Psycho. <laughs> then no. You remember Psycho? Okay. Because he was talking about Psycho, and if you didn't know the title of the movie and you just saw that intro, you would have no idea where the movie was heading. It's so crazy because I remember the intro and the woman that the main character she pretty much robs the bank that she works for and runs away. So you don't know, like, if you didn't know that the title or what it was going to be about, like, it's so crazy what happens. I mean, you definitely know because of the title, but if you didn't know, Wait, it would have ti- been shocking. What, how does the title allude to what happens? Because, you know, the, there's a cycle in the movie who's going to do something. And but that famous you... scene, I'm guessing, would be advertised with the movie. Oh, yeah, where they ruin it always at the beginning by showing you way before you've ever even seen the film, like, the most important part. Yeah. But, like, let's say, so that first scene happens, we don't know the name of the movie, and uh, you're telling me we could watch this whole movie and not get it? You would figure it out slowly? Like, they put pieces throughout the movie, and then in the end, you um, you get to know, like, okay, this is why he did it, or whatever, or this is... You get to learn more about the bad guy of the movie, I guess, in the end. Would it be appropriate to call this movie Norman Bates? Or is that also giving off too much? Does it look like he's the main character? No. You think she's the main character through the movie? I mean, she is the main character. What's her name? I don't remember. Because it ends up not being about her. Like, yeah, she's there and she survives. It takes a place in in a hotel, right? Yeah. So then would it have been appropriate to call it hotel? Yeah, I guess. And then it would have given nothing away? Well, hmm. If it was somehow about her, I guess, the title relating to her robbing the place. And then you're like, okay, that's what the movie's about. And then it just turns into this whole she's gonna die thing and how is she gonna survive this situation like it has nothing to do with the money and anything yeah but she survives because the person who's looking for her because they know she robbed the bank he finds her and saves her i think or something like that the kid not the kid who what the investigator oh of the bank robbing is he more of a main character than her son her son the killer oh what about the killer wait what i'm confused who's the main character the woman the woman and then the detective yeah and norman bates isn't her son no no he's the guy that runs the hotel norman bates yes isn't he a kid no he's not a kid there's a show based on the movie and in the show he's a kid now is the mom crazy the mom is dead so, I don't know. Maybe. We're watching this from his imagination? No, we're watching this from the girl who stole from the bank. That's not his mom. No, that's not his mom. That's why you wouldn't know that it's about him and his mom. I guess the relationship he has with his mom, all of that comes later. It's first just about this woman who stole from a bank and is running. Got you. And that's like, what? And then all of that is revealed about him and his mom and all that other stuff. How far in before we realize it's about him? Probably that famous shower scene. 
if it wasn't famous, would we know? If that scene never happened and it's not called Psycho. Oh, actually, I think there is a part where you see his eye looking at her through a hole, like peeping. I don't know if it's in that shower scene. I think it might have happened before that. Would you be able to tell that's him? Hmm. Maybe? I don't know. I guess you would assume. At what point would you realize, okay, because of the whole... But is that trope because of that movie? Ooh, I don't know. Interesting. Yes. Because it is a really old movie. So there's probably a lot of things that's based on this horror movie. Because it's particularly popular, nevertheless. Mm Mm-hmm. So who knows? Yeah. But that was really interesting. It just reminded me of that when he was talking about it. Yeah, I don't know crap about that movie. But that conversation definitely did address a bunch of uh, details in movies. Things I've never even thought about, like the fact that uh, uh, slasher flicks definitely serve a purpose when it comes to storytelling. To have this blindly evil thing that doesn't really matter allows you to focus entirely on the good guy and kind of tell the story on that angle. Of the hero. Yeah, without consideration. You don't have to care about the bad guy. Yeah. He's just a bad guy. For what sake? For the sake of being a bad guy. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when you're writing magic. Does it matter all the nuances about the magic? Is it about the magic or does it not fucking matter? And you could just like, hey, so long as you didn't solve it with this because this. Yeah. Everyone takes it in a different approach and it all works. There's yes. not one way that's better than the other. It's just the the approach people use when using a certain or how good the tools are applied. Because you could have a completely evil bad guy who's evil for the sake of evil, but that's the reason it sucks. Yeah, like that, you know? that happens too. Yeah, Like that's DC's problem. You can't give a shit about anybody. Yeah. You just know their name. Yeah. And that's it. And yeah, that's it. That's the peak of it. Yeah. But there's a lot more wrong with DC than that. Yeah. That's just one of the many problems. The, the flying fights that seem to destroy everything as well. Yeah. <sighs> so terrible. Everyone's dead. There's no one that exists yeah. outside the superheroes. They're all dead. It sucks. Yeah, man. It sucks. It sucks. Those movies are terrible. Yeah. But I definitely like where this is a weird, weird discussion where we definitely got into the morality of filmmaking, the morality of films, the philosophy of filmmaking, the philosophy of films, the ideas and approaches people have, what's good, what's right, censorship related to art, and the fact that sometimes that's appropriate. Like, really, 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 I don't approve of the whole Sonic thing, but it did open an interesting door that kind of invented an art of its own and if used properly rather than letting every group of imbeciles with an opinion alter a a creator's opinion on something but rather than doing that Mm -hmm. approaching a piece of art like it was meant to be a collaborative effort that that would be amazing i want to see how that turns out yeah i'm sure there are things like that Probably, but, but not in mass like this. Mm-hmm. Like where you, ha- where it, the cool thing is to have millions of people participating and t- sort of guiding it. Put ten million options and have people vote. Yeah, and they click, and then whatever click has the most on top. And okay, that's the next step here. Yes. Ooh. And then who knows? It's like a make your own adventure, but it turns into a movie. Yeah, and that's then that what gets I was put. thinking of. Like those video games that are 
a movie, but you get to decide what to do or what the character does. That'll be amazing. Like, how Mm -hmm. cool would that be to participate in something? And it doesn't just have to be that. It's kind of like when somebody sees an artist and the artist is taking suggestions and then they're like, "Uh, do this. And they do the thing. Okay, that was collaborative. He didn't think of the thing, but somebody said something and he makes his version of of what they saw, what triggered him in his mind. If there was more of a give and take, kind of like getting a tattoo done. No, no, I didn't like that part. Can you change that a little? Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Okay, yeah, what about now? Okay, I like this, but now because of that, that looks weird. Okay, yeah, I'll change that. And then there's give and take, and, like, a, a tattoo is never the person's thing unless you just take a perfect, like, copy this. And it's not that special, though, if you do it like that, yeah. too. Unless there was a prior meaning to it, it's meaningless. Yeah. It's you, you gave them a thing at the end. But, like... When you're in a back and forth, a tug of war with the artist, you do have something interesting there because it is a collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. You are the canvas, but you are also half of the ideas. That is interesting. You think they'll do a movie like that one day? Man, that'd be (laughs) cool. It did open that door. It's a possibility. It's just, what are the odds? Then again, if you feel involved, you're more likely to watch it. So that could definitely become an interesting interactive medium. Yes. Ooh. It's profitable. I'll give you that much. Mm-hmm. Sonic did fucking well. I know. That's so crazy. You just changed the character look and then boom, the... It, I, think I mean, it, did it would better. have been good, maybe. I think it did better than it would have because people were involved. They felt yeah. a personal stake. Mm. And I think that's where that comes in. I think that's definitely where that medium comes into play. I think so, yeah. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Anyways, like I told you guys, Colin Bressler is an astounding guy. He is definitely an interesting individual. I am glad I got to pick his mind. It was a fascinating discussion. Loved it. Definitely one of my favorite. Very awesome, very awesome. And uh, so you can find uh, Colin at all his locations, all these exciting things he's doing. So you can find him on Instagram at Bressler Productions. You can find his website at BresslerProductions.com. You can find his films on Amazon Prime Video and look particularly for Remy's Demons. That is his newest work. Uh, But you can also find Domestic Hell, Bloody Drama, and Sandra's Revolution. So go check all those films out on Amazon Prime. And uh, yeah, as for us, you could find all our goodies at all our locations at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as long as that's up at Just Convo Pod. You could also find the podcast on the official website, graythoughts.info, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you can get your podcasts. Yes, and remember to subscribe and rate the show. Leave us a beautiful rate, and if you feel so inclined, review it. But you're obligated to rate. Your life depends on it. Okay, and let someone who might like it know about it. Yes, word of mouth. Like I've told you many, many times. You go, you run, you put the show in a bag. Many, many of them in a sock. Do it to prison. Do this shit prison style. You put the show in a fucking sock. You tie that sock. Crap ton of episodes. Just pile that sock up and tie that sock. And go outside and the first person you see, you beat the shit out of them with the show. And you're like, that's what you get. And then you leave the sock with them. And you're like, now listen. And just keep walking. it up and it's a fight club. Yeah, there'll be fight club in there. But there'll be episodes of this show in there too. So you do that. You do that now. Mm-hmm. 
This has been the Just Conversation podcast. Take nothing personal and thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. From Phoenix, Arizona. Is it possible that ghosts aren't bound by gravity? Oh, interesting. We already talked about this. Oh, yeah, and they might not be. They might not be. If you're haunting a thing, you're not bound by gravity. You're bound to the thing. Yeah. And your perception of the thing, or the echo's perception of the thing, you're fucking haunting the house. You can move through the walls, but you can't move through the floor. Why is that? It's not because the floor is holding you. It's because the floor is part of the house. And once you go under the floor, you're not in the house anymore. Yeah. And if you're not stuck on one thing, you're probably traveling through space. And through space. Wherever. And thus you are a different being of some sort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're a ghost fish. Ghost fish. Yes. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. The Just Conversation podcast is hosted by Christina Colazzo and Jack Thomas, produced by Lynn Taylor and published by GreatThoughts.info, art by Nitrum and Zero Lupo, and logo by Seth McAllister, with social media managed by Amber Black.